0: This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. I love Basecamp. You know what I didn't love? My first job right out of college. More than, geez, two decades ago now? Nonstop email, busy work, yada, yada, yada. That was the norm. I remember thinking, please just let me do my job. And now it's even worse. You're reachable everywhere all the time. You have separate apps for chatting, others for sharing files, email, tasks, progress tracking. The list just goes on and on. And with endless emails and back-to-back meetings, you're thinking, just let me do my job. You and your team deserve, wait for it, less. Less complexity, less confusion, and certainly fewer time-wasting meetings and notifications. Basecamp combines everything you need to manage your team and projects into one simple platform. I've used Basecamp myself, along with my team, for a million different things. Optimize your business with Basecamp and cut your inboxes and calendars in half. You can save time and money. Right now, Basecamp is offering a free 30-day trial. Plus, listeners of The Tim Ferriss Show, that's you guys, get an exclusive discount. Get 10% off of your first year's annual subscription when you sign up at Basecamp.com Tim. That's a free 30-day trial plus 10% off, as my dear listeners, at Basecamp.com Tim. Learn more. Check it out. Basecamp.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep, and heat is my personal nemesis. I've suffered for decades tossing and turning, throwing blankets off, pulling the back on, putting one leg on top, and repeating all of that ad nauseum. But now I am falling asleep in record time. Why? Because I'm using a device that was recommended to me by friends called the Pod Cover by 8sleep. The pod cover fits on any mattress and allows you to adjust the temperature of your sleeping environment, providing the optimal temperature that gets you the best night's sleep with the pod covers, dual zone temperature control. You and your partner can set your sides of the bed to as cool as 55 degrees or as hot as 110 degrees. I think generally in my experience, my partner's prefer the high side and I like to sleep very very cool. So stop fighting. This helps. Based on your biometrics, environment and sleep stages, the pod cover makes temperature adjustments throughout the night that limit wake-ups and increase your percentage of deep sleep. In addition to its best-in-class temperature regulation, the pod cover sensors also track your health and sleep metrics without the need to use a wearable. So go to 8 sleep dot slash Tim, all spelled out, 8sleep.com slash Tim, and save $250 on the 8sleep pod cover. That's 8sleep.com slash Tim. 8sleep Eight currently ships within the US, Canada, and the UK, select countries in the EU and Australia. Again, that's 8sleep.com slash Tim to save $250 on the 8sleep pod cover. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for
1: a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now time. What if I the I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal
0: Just a quick preface before we get started, John and I got into the weeds. We got deep in the weeds very quickly and started to discuss how specific words shape our thinking and consequently our behavior in the West. So we got into language and quickly... That led to a discussion of how, say, subjective, objective, that distinction did not exist for a very long time, arguably for the majority of the history of humankind, and so on and so forth. But it was very dense. So we took that section. It's around 10 minutes long, and we moved that to the very end. It is good. I think it's super interesting. But because of its density, we moved it to the very end of the interview. So when we wrap, if you want to hear that, just stick around for an extra 30 seconds, and it'll start back up and enjoy Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm going to keep my preamble short because I would like to get into the meat and potatoes of this conversation that I've been looking forward to. My guest today is John Verveke on Twitter. You can find him at Verveke underscore John. He is a professor of psychology and cognitive science at the University of Toronto. He currently teaches courses on thinking and reasoning with an emphasis on cognitive development, intelligence, rationality, mindfulness, and the psychology of wisdom. Verveke is the director of torontos Consciousness and Wisdom Studies Laboratory and its Cognitive Science Program, where he teaches Introduction to Cognitive Science and the Cognitive Science of Consciousness, emphasizing the 4E model, which I'm sure we will get into, which contends that cognition and consciousness are embodied, embedded, enacted, and extended beyond the brain. Verveke has taught courses on Buddhism and Cognitive Science in the Buddhism, Psychology, and Mental Health Program for 15 years. He is the author and presenter of the outstanding, that's what I'm adding, YouTube series. I highly recommend Awakening from the Meaning Crisis and his brand new series After Socrates. You can find all things John Verveke at johnverveke.com. That is spelled V-E-R-V-A-E-K-E, johnverveke.com. John, thank you so much for taking the time today. great pleasure
1: to be here, Tim. Great pleasure indeed. Could you please elaborate on the four ways of knowing? So the idea about a taxonomy that has to be principled, and so what it is, is every one of these kinds of knowing has a particular vehicle, a particular result, a particular standard, and a particular kind of memory. I'm not going through all of these things to be pedantic. I'm going through these to show that this is a rigorous taxonomy. You can cut up the world however you want, but in the scientific taxonomy, you want it to be very systematic and rigorous. So the, the kind of knowing we're most familiar with and our culture is very fixated on is propositional knowing. This is knowing that something is the case. This is knowing that cats are mammals, knowing that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And the standard of realness for that is truth. You're convinced that something is true, and it results in beliefs. You get true beliefs, and perhaps they become true justified beliefs, etc. And the kind of memory that's associated with that is called semantic memory. So, for example, if I ask you, do you remember learning that cats are mammals? Can you tell me the day that that really dropped for you? And you go, I don't know That's semantic memory. And the reason why I'm saying this is all of these memories are distinct from each other such that like, it's possible to damage one without the others being completely damaged. So the next is procedural knowing this is knowing how this is knowing how to kiss someone. This is knowing how to kick a ball. This is knowing how to swim. And this doesn't result in beliefs. This results in skills. And skills aren't true or false. Uh, Tim, do you know how to swim? I do. Right. Now, is swimming true or false right now? You're misunderstanding. (laughs) Skills aren't true or false. They apply or they don't, and they apply powerfully or they don't. And so its standard of realness is powered. Does our know-how empower us? And then prosaically enough, psychologists call the form of memory associated with this procedural memory. Yeah. Now— each one of these, I'm going in an order of dependence. The propositional depends on the procedural, and we can get into that in a minute, but I'll, I'll just go through the four first. The next is perspectival knowing. This is knowing what it's like to be. So you know what it's like to be you now in your state of mind in this situation. You know what you're foregrounding. You know what you're backgrounding. You know what is salient for you. You, you can sense how the salience is shifting around. you got a sense of how you're fitted to this situation. and This doesn't result in skills or beliefs, it results in perspectives. And you know how to take perspectives, and you know what the difference between perspectives are, and how valuable it is to have multi-perspectives on a situation. And sometimes in order to solve a problem, you shift to a different perspective. So perspectives aren't true or false, they're not powerful or not. Their standard of realness is presence. How present are you in the situation? And in fact, when people do VR work, they look for this. How much do people feel like they're in the game, right? There's that, that's the perspectival knowing, right? That they're really situated in it, that they really belong to it, et cetera, et cetera. And this has its own kind of memory called episodic memory. So I can ask you perhaps, do you remember what you did on your last birthday? And the answer is yes. And what you'll do is you'll remember a particular perspective you had on a particular situation and your state of mind in that situation. That's your episodic memory. Now, below that, and this gets to what we were talking about earlier, is participatory knowing. This is knowing by being. This is the kind of knowing that results from how you and reality have been co-shaped to fit together, to generate those affordances. So, for example, the water bottle and I have both been shaped by gravity. We've both been shaped by electromagnetism so that we can, there's an affordance there. We've both been shaped by a biological history which is niche construction. My ancestors evolved. They made tools that shaped the environment that shaped my ancestors, right? And culture has shaped me in this. Technology made this and taught me how to drink out of a water bottle. So there's been all this co-shaping of me and parts of the environment. So we fit together. We're niche together. We belong together. Affordances are available to me. And then that's carried in this very... Weird sense of memory that you probably don't even recognize. Is, it's your sense of self. Yeah. The sense of all of the identities you've taken up and how they're somehow historically, narratively linked together to certain narrative histories of certain situations. So here's the proposal you have participatory knowing, it's laying out affordances. And when that's missing, you know it. Culture shock, or when you're homesick, or when you're lonely. Could you just define affordances? The affordances are real relations for how you can interact with the object and how the inter-object, how that object is available to you. So this affords graspability. The water bottle is graspable. That's an affordance, a real relation of fittedness. So me and the water bottle belong together. It makes itself available for certain interactions, and I can shape myself to interact with it powerfully and appropriately. Did that work as an
0: explanation? It did work. Could you perhaps give an example of an affordance that would come into
1: play with culture shock? So an affordance would come into play with culture shock is there are certain affordances about how you and other people relate that tell you when a conversation is available to you, when there is an affordance for conversation. And Mm -hmm. notice that most of this is unconscious for you. Notice even within your own culture. So Tim, how, how close should you stand to somebody at a funeral?
0: You know, I was just thinking about the uh, <laughs> body spacing because I was just in Japan where it's very, very different. I couldn't give you a discrete number, but I was probably a feeling associated with it where it goes from right. comfortable to
1: uncomfortable. Right. And you've got that sense of, and it wasn't working in Japan. Very different. And so that way of connecting to people by shaping the literal personal space between you and them was not available to you. That affordance wasn't there. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so the affordances are here, and then the perspectival knowing makes certain affordances salient to me, grabbing my attention, arousing my metabolism. The floor is walkable for me right now, but I don't need to walk right now, so it's not something that I'm paying attention to, right? Yeah, yeah. But I bring it into my situational awareness with the perspectival knowing. That situational awareness tells me which skills I should activate, which procedural knowing? And then the procedural knowing puts me into the causal relationships with the world that, that give me the evidence for my beliefs. So that's all the kinds of knowing. And the point is, outside of the propositional, these other kinds of knowing are built on the way you are coupled to the environment, dynamically coupled to the environment. And therefore they hearken back to that participation, that contact we were talking about.
0: Right, and I suppose it's this coupling and interaction with the environment on a few different levels in the sense that you have your sort of skin encapsulated ego and its interaction with what we perceive as external elements. And then you have perhaps those who think of mind and body in this Cartesian dualistic way, you have the interaction of the body with the mind, which in some respects is the entire reason for which the brain evolved in some respects. Let me just come back to semantic memory. Could you give just another example of semantic
1: memory? Because I don't think I grasped that. Like if I ask you, are dogs fishes? And what do you say to me? I say no. That's semantic memory. Did anybody ever sit you down? Do you remember it? Do you have an episodic memory? of? Right. I remember when I learned that dogs weren't fishes, right? Yep. right? It, it, so it, it's not bound up with your particular perspective on a situation or the state of mind you are in. It is this abstracted fact. And that's what propositions are about. They're about these abstracted facts. Got it. So I've read somewhere, and I can't
0: believe everything I read on the internet, so I'd love for you to fact check this. Is there some interplay between what people experience as flow states and the activation or use of multiple
1: forms of knowing? Or did I just pull that out of the air? No, I have argued for that thesis. So I don't know if that makes it a fact, but I would definitely, <laughs> I would definitely argue on his behalf. I think, well, I mean, I, I've published and done work on the flow state. And I think the flow state is an example of, in our experience, a prioritization of the procedural, the perspectival, and the participatory over the propositional. In fact, one of the things people reliably report is that whole propositional processing drops out even that narrative nanny, you know, the thing in your head that's like, how am I doing? How do I look? Do people like me? How am I doing? Maybe I should lose some weight. How am I doing? How's my hair? Right? That all falls away because you're so, this goes to what I was saying a few minutes ago. There's this, there's this enlivening, enriching of a sense of contact. One of the defining features of the flow state is people feel at one with their environment. They feel dynamically coupled to it. So that's participatory. They feel at one with it. And the perspectival, everything is super salient. There's an ongoing sense of discovery, almost like insight. And well, I've argued it's an insight cascade and and you're, you're getting super present. And then, of course, the procedurality is you just know how to do it and it just flow, hence the word, it just flows from you. And what's really important, Tim? Is that the flow state is optimal for people. They think they're at their best with good reason. And they'll say it's one of the best experiences they had, one of the most rewarding, even more rewarding than pleasure, right? So much so that asking people how frequently they get into the flow state is a good predictor of their sense of well being. Mm. And so here's the point I want to make about that this is a clear example of that non propositional connectedness. Flow is about. Really realizing the transjectivity, the connectedness, and how much it contributes to a sense of agency and meaning for people. Yeah. I think we're going to jump in the, the deep end of the meaning pool shortly.
0: Let me ask you first, though, given what you just said, how highly do you prioritize getting into flow states yourself? And if the answer is reasonably high or higher,
1: how do you personally like to get into flow states? So I've said this, and I mean this deeply, and I don't mean it as a trivial commodification. Taoism is the religion philosophy of, of flow. And I've been practicing Taoist practices, Tai Chi Chuan, Jian Zhang, Yi Chuan, Qigong. I got professional training and practiced for 10 years as a Shiatsu therapist. I've done it all. Not at all. That's pretentious. But I've done a lot. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> right? And what those things do, and this is something I want to talk to you about at some point, they get me into a flow state, but in a particular way that I think is really important. And this goes to a story I've told. I was in grad school and I'd, I'd been doing Tai Chi Chuan for about three or four years. I was doing it really religiously, both in the sense of devotedly, and I was doing it like two or three hours a day and going to the dojo three or four times a week kind of thing. And some of my fellow students came up to me and said, well, what's going on with you? What are you doing differently? I'm like, oh, I, you know, you're worried in grad school that people are going to find you. Out. <laughs> and so I said, I'm doing Tai Chi Chuan. And, well, and I said, well, why are you saying that? And they said, well, because you're just more, like in conversations, you're much more flowing and you're much more flexible and you're much more balanced and you're much more receptive. And it was like, oh, oh, the flow state that I'm getting into in Tai Chi is permeating many different domains of my life and many different levels of my mind. And I thought, ah, and this is a question, this, this has become a question to me. What are the contexts that generate flow that transfers like that powerfully? I'm glad you think it's a great question because even if you get a good question, then you're a good scientist, then you're doing something, right? One of the things I think has to do with whether or not the skill or the skill set that's being trained in the particular practice is relatively indispensable in domains other than the situation you're in. Now, ideas about sensory motor movement and balance and coordination and getting the cerebellum and the frontal cortex to talk better to each other, that transfers broadly. We've already got a lot of informa- like evidence about that, especially the cerebellum cortex loop. Like Even when people are meditating, the cerebellum is firing like crazy because of the, of the cerebellum cortex loop. And so if it does that, then... It even shows up in the metaphors. We talk about balancing equations and justice being the balancing of things and scales. And so you want to find a set of skills that has that inbuilt potential. And then what I would want to say is the degree to which there has been a framework built around the situation, a ritual philosophical framework, that helps to afford the translation. So around the Tai Chi Chuan, you have Taoism, which gives you this way of framing reality as yin and yang that you can see instantiated in the Tai Chi, but you can also see it prevalent in the world. You set up the possibility with this framework for the resonance. So people who get trapped, and I'm not saying that all video games trap people, but the ones that suffer from video game addiction, they get the problem that they flow in a world that is not does not have a framework around it, does not tap into those generally transferable skills. And so they find the external world depressing because of its absence of flow potential that drives them into the game where they flow and then you get the vicious cycle that gets you into the addiction. So I think there's something about, are the kinds of skills that are being brought into the flow state, do they have this domain general power? And is there a framework around it that helps people set up these patterns of resonance between what they're doing in the practice and how they're seeing the world and encountering it.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. If there is some overarching philosophical framework or religious framework, for that matter, within which you're practicing a given skill, there's a broader context that then extends whatever you're honing in this specific situation to other domains. And it makes me think, actually, of a friend of mine. His name is Josh Waitskin. He was the basis for Searching for Bobby Fischer, the book and the movie, of course, very very high level chess player, but he talks a lot. He no longer plays chess; he does a million other things. He was actually world champion in Tai Chi Push Hands. And what I find most—I shouldn't say most interesting—he's a lovely, deeply soulful guy. So it's not that I'm looking at him as a sort of instrument of learning mastery, but he is able to take concepts from all these different disciplines and apply them in transfers to all of these other things. So, for instance, in chess, he talks a lot about practicing the macro in the micro or learning the macro from the micro. So he'll say, yeah, chess people often novices will say practice openings, but that's kind of like copying from the teacher's answer book. You're memorizing a lot in terms of declarative knowledge, but you're not learning principles. So he'll say, why don't you start with, let's just say three or four or five pieces on the board and you're going to practice manipulating empty space or pulling into a vacuum. And lo and behold, a lot of those same principles transferred over to Tai Chi, and then he took principles from Tai Chi and moved them over into foil boarding. <laughs> Is Tai Chi your go-to break glass in case of emergency tool in the department of flow states, or do you have other I have approaches I have in the quiver?
1: Yeah, and so, and this comes from the Socratic part of my framework, if you want to put it that way. That sounds very pretentious, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it. I have learned how to get into the flow state when lecturing. ah, And that inevitably affords really good learning. Of course, not for every student. That would be claimed something that's impossible. No teacher is a, is a great teacher to every student. But I mean, I've won teaching awards, et cetera, et cetera. And that's because of this. And oh, very often students get drawn into it. Because there's, I encourage a lot of sort of Socratic dialogue in the lecture, and so it very much often becomes a shared flow state. I become very interested in shared flow states and what they mean for how we can unpack the capacity for insight and reflection. So that's one of my other go-to areas. Let's unpack that a little bit. So in lecturing,
0: did you do that naturally from the outset, kind of like Usain Bolt having just different tendon attachments and so on. You can just run fast. So did that come out of the box for you? Or was that a shared flow state in the form of lecturing a learned skill? If so, how did you
1: develop that? So very much a cultivated thing and deliberately so. By nature, I'm almost pathologically shy. And so I didn't realize it was a lesson from Aristotle at the time, but you know, you cultivate your character to compensate for your personality defects. I've read r- my report cards from grade 3, and they were calling me mini-teacher. Uh, so taking on the role of the teacher, and I was fortunate to have some really wonderful teachers that allowed this, and to have classmates that enjoyed it. Huh. I mean, think of all the conditions of how that could have gone wrong, right? Yeah. So very fortunate. And that was how I started to manage that situation. Manage a situation, you mean manage your shyness by yes. assuming the role of teacher? Yes, right, the the full sort of persona and the role. So Tim, if this is close enough to teaching, and I don't mean to put you in the role of a student, I'm not saying that, but it's close enough, it's in proximity for transfer. Oh, I'm a student. (laughs) Yeah, well, anyways, it's comfortable. But I mean, if you were to meet me like at a social party, Mm -hmm. I'm at times indistinguishable from potted plants, right? Because (laughs) when I don't have that role available to me, my sort of natural constitution comes out. So, it was very deliberately cultivated from very, very early on. And then, as I started doing Tai Chi Chuan, when I started in grad school hearing about the bleed, that's when I started to teach and lecture, and I looked for it, and I looked for what broke it and what enhanced it, and I slowly cultivated it more and more over time. Yes, it was very much a deliberate, long-term cultivation. What enhances it? Because you take, let's let's, just grab an example out of the air.
0: Harvard Business School, they have these case study methods and there is ostensibly supposed to be a fair amount of interplay between lecturer and student. But I would imagine that not all professors or grad students or whoever is doing the teaching at the time would say they achieve a flow state, even if they've experienced it in other places like surfing. So what have you
1: found to be things that enhance that for yourself and for the students? Part of this, I'm going to declare a bias because I have a published theory about what I think the flow state is. I think it's an insight cascade and the enhancement of an implicit learning. So an Enhance, we cultivate better insight capacities. We cultivate better intuition in an integrated manner. So I'm stating the bias up front, but I I think it's a good theory, and I think it's well-argued and well evidenced. So what I mean by that is, more and more I crafted giving priority to the emergence of insight or intuition in me as I was lecturing, and not sticking to the script so strongly, but willing to bend— so I use the jazz analogy. I may have the script of the lecture, but I can riff on it and I look and I hunger and sensitize myself for that. When the students start to even demonstrate sort of proto insight, I will really call that out. I mean, in a positive manner and draw it out and they get, and they start priming each other with insights and they start priming me and I start priming them. It's an easy thing to state and it's a hard thing to do because when you're lecturing and when I teach people how to lecture, I actually, try to say, I try to get them to make space for the jazz. Because what you do when you're anxious, and one of the things that really kills it a lot is PowerPoint, right? <laughs> yeah. Because what you want is, I need to say all of these things and I need to be clear and I need to have this fa- everything follow. You try to constrain your anxiety with the tightness of this structure that you built. Yeah. And what that actually does is that undermines the possibility of flow. And so, it's like Tai Chi Chuan. You want to be pung. You want to don't want to be too yin, too yang. You want to, You got to loosen the structure enough so that insight and intuition flow, but not so much that the lecture becomes incoherent. And you find the sweet spot. How did you find Tai Chi, or how did Tai Chi find you? I was brought up in a uh, fundamentalist Christian extended family, not just the nuclear family, the extended family. And it's only sort of later that I've come to realize how traumatizing that was for me. And so when I was 15, I read a couple of books, Lord of Light and Siddhartha, Lord of Light by Raja Zelazny, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, Fifth Business by Robertson Davies, and it really blew me open. It really blew me open. So I left the Christianity, you know, and like I said, I've done some therapy and other things, but... Your mother religion is like your mother tongue, right? It shapes you in a way that nothing else ever can, or your first love, right? You don't, you don't necessarily stay with that person, but it shapes you in very interesting ways in, in your relationships. And so, if you'll allow me a metaphor, it left a taste for the transcendent in my mm. mouth. Mm. And then I got to university, and I took a first-year course in philosophy, and I encountered the figure of Socrates and the project of wisdom. And it was like... That's it. And of course, that is still with me now. That's how profound it hit me, how profoundly. And then I went into philosophy. What happened in philosophy, academic philosophy, now it's changing now, but we're talking about a long time ago, the 80s, the topic of wisdom, self-transcendence, all these kinds of things that are rich in the platonic corpus, it drops off the table. And you talk about skepticism and epistemology, and these are valuable sort of meta-scientific and meta-cultural skills, and I I value them. But that hunger for the cultivation of wisdom was not being met. And I happened to live in a place where literally down the road, there was the Tai Chi and meditation center. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to give the Eastern philosophies a try, and maybe they will give me what I need for satisfying this hunger for the cultivation of wisdom. And I was very lucky again because, first of all, wonderful people. And secondly, this is where I got what I would now call an ecology of practices. They didn't teach me one thing. They taught me a meditative practice, Vipassana. They taught me a contemplative practice, Metta. And then they taught me Tai Chi Chuan to get how to flow between them in a regular and reliable ecology of practices. And, it, and that, that's how it happened. And that has been with me ever since.
0: Wow. Vipassana, meta, and tai chi—that is a very potent and uh, uncommon trinity. There, that's a very formidable combination of things. And I, I do want to revisit at some point meditation as contrasted with contemplation. Yes. But first, I'd like to ask you: How old were you when you decided to leave Christianity, and what was that experience like?
1: Oh, <laughs> Fifteen. Yeah. And my life became bifurcated and fragmented in a way that I came to deeply find distasteful. And so trying to deal with fragmentation has also become a pervasive theme, whether it's a fragmentation within a person or a fragmentation between the different disciplines that study the mind. That's why I'm in cognitive scientists, trying to integrate and solve the fragmentation problem, right? It was very challenging for me because. I couldn't move out on my own or anything. I'm 15, right? right? I'm still in my family. And they knew that something was going on, and there was kind of this weird don't ask, don't tell thing. It was very challenging me. There were times when I went to church, and the minister would be getting everybody to bow their head and raise their hand if they agreed with this. And, of course, everybody's looking around surreptitiously, and everybody's raising their hand, and I'm the one person not raising my hand. And just very, very difficult. And then of course I had a, it was a group of friends, close friends at high school that they became very much invested in this project that I was engaged in of wrestling with meaning. And they really, and so they became very supportive and that was very happy mm. for me, but you know, and it caused things and it caused me to get married too young because marrying was a way of escaping that fundamentalist family and setting up a new one. And And I'm on on good terms with my ex. I'm not making any criticisms of her. I'm just saying we got married, I think, too young because we were both escaping that. That's a good reason for forming a company together for a while, like, uh, you know, the Fellowship of the Ring or something. We're both going to leave fundamentalism together. We're going to help. But it's not the basis for a long-term marriage, right? It's not. And of course, you don't know this at the time. The ways in which, you know, I was foolish around this are are significant, but— I was wrestling with a lot of stuff. I was wrestling with a profound kind of depression. I used to call it the black burning in my chest because of that hole, like I said. I can imagine. But also, like I said, that there was trauma. There's instances like from when I was still in it as a kid that were absolutely traumatic to me. Like I came home one day and I lived within walking distance of the school and there was always somebody in the home just because of the way it was a small home. We were a poor family There was kids and, you know, my mom was mostly a housewife. I came home one and there was nobody there. And I was absolutely convinced to my bones that the rapture had occurred. Mm. All my family had been taken away. I was too sinful. I was left behind. And the Antichrist and his minions were coming for me. This is like, I'm 10. And then another one. I used to read the Bible every day, and I'm glad I have, by the way. Biblical literacy is a really important part of cultural literacy. I don't begrudge that, and the, and the Bible still is deeply meaningful to me. But I read this passage in the New Testament where, and in multiple places, they talk about the unforgivable sin, the sin that can never be forgiven, no matter how much you pray about it. And I was terrified, and I thought, have I committed again, I think it was like 12, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And I got like, and is thinking that the unforgivable sin, and, and my mother could tell I was, getting like, I, was, I was getting deeply distressed. And she took me to the minister who was supposed to help me, and he just gave me empty platitudes that even as a 12-year-old, I recognized were completely useless. And I realized, he doesn't have an answer to this. You know, he pretended he had it. He spoke with the confidence of some, but there was no answer forthcoming. And it was just that kind of trauma. And these are just a couple instances of many. And again, I am not villainizing my mom or my dad or my family. I love them. My mom and my dad are both dead. I love my extended family. But this is when I stepped out of that, that now came to the fore well you've got to address this what is the world such that right you shouldn't have these fears you shouldn't have these terrors what do you do with the way that has sort of made you afraid of things and so it, yeah it took it took work it took therapy it took meditation contemplation tai chi chuan a lot of good education especially in the socratic platonic tradition so that's what it was like i wouldn't recommend it for anybody but the thing i have to tell you tim is i meet a lot of people who are attracted to my work because of something similar like this happening to them. They have left a religious home, and they do not find any religious homes viable, yet they still hunger for that deep connectedness, that meaning, that space in which one can cultivate wisdom. Let's segue to this
0: word, wisdom, because this might sound strange, but the self-transcendence and the experience of that, I have some, I suppose, experience that lends itself to understanding what that means. Wisdom though, I would love for you to define for
1: us just so, so everybody, including myself, is on, on the same page. Knowledge is about overcoming ignorance. Wisdom is about overcoming foolishness. So you understand wisdom by understanding foolishness and you understand foolishness as not identical to ignorance. These are the moves you have to make to get the chess pieces on the board if you wanna play the game we're gonna play. Foolishness, what do we mean by this? And this is an idea that's born in the Axial Revolution, the specific notion of foolishness. But this this idea, and I think for e bears it out. I argue, vote, and I publish about it. The very processes that make us intelligent problem solvers, make us so adaptive, are the very same processes that make us prone to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. You don't get one without the other. So... You use your intelligence to solve problems, but you use rationality and wisdom to deal with the self-deception that emerges as you're trying to solve your problems. And that's a very different thing. And the thing about these self-deceptions is they don't come as sort of isolated little things. They they can constellate into complex patterns of self-organization. You know, the confirmation bias can strengthen egocentrism, which can strengthen the degree to which you engage in a kind of narrow framing of situations, which can then feed back into the confirm. And we've published on this, right? You get these massively complex, the dynamical complex self-organization of your cognition is hijacked by self-deceptive processes. And they form these systems that are also complex and adaptive and hard to intervene on. We call that parasitic processing, in the work (laughs) that Leo and I published. John, would you
0: mind giving an example? Because there are people listening, I'm sure a lot of people listening, who pride themselves on being good problem solvers, having strong analytical minds. And they're like, "Yeah, I don't see how that automatically begets, not automatically, but how that would beget, delusion, self-deception. Would you mind giving an example, real or hypothetical?
1: Well, let's use a chess example. Okay. Here's the problem facing you in chess. You can't actually check all the possible alternative pathways for playing a chess game. The number of alternative pathways is greater than the number of atomic particles in the universe. So even the super fastest chess game can't check all of the possible alternative sequences of actions. That's why, by the way, you get a chess game that beats any human being, or let's do it with Go. You get AlphaGo beats any human being, but then you can make a machine that beats AlphaGo because no AI can algorithmically play and search. So what we have to do is we have to bias what information we check. This is the paradox. It sounds like a Zen Cohen, right? You're intelligent because of your ability to ignore so much information in a way that makes obvious to you the relevant information enough of the time that you're a very good problem solver in very many domains. So you're playing chess. What's a good heuristic? Control the center board. I've played with somebody who was controlling the center board. I realized that they were biasing their attention that way, and so I played a peripheral game and beat them. Now, should people not focus on the center board? Well, no, it's a very good heuristic. But it's heuristic. It's not an algorithm. This is a formal thing. It's called the no-free-lunch theorem. There is no problem-solving method that will universally solve all your problems. In fact, the area above... The line of average problem solving where it's improving your performance is equal to an area under the line where it degrades your performance. Every bias is just a heuristic misfiring, and every heuristic is just a bias that happens to be working for us in a lot of contexts. They're interchangeable (laughs) together. And so, even when you're doing analytic stuff, you're confronting this, you often realize the way you framed the problem is actually what's preventing you from solving the problem. You have to have that aha moment that breaks you out of it. But when you're trapped in it, that's a form of self-deception. You can't really lie to yourself. What you do is you bias your attention to find the wrong thing salient in a way that binds you to trying to solve it in a particular manner. This shows up in interpersonal context. I'm sure you've had something like this as an experience. Oh, oh, I thought she was angry, but she's afraid. She's afraid, not angry. I've been going at this all wrong. Yeah, But that doesn't mean that sometimes people aren't angry at you, and you shouldn't see them as angry at you, right? right? And so, pure logic. You're going in to do a logic class. This is from my history, and a lot of people will back me up on this. For a while, what you're doing is you're practicing doing all the machinery of the transformations and the logic trees and all the derivations, and you just got to practice that. And then you realize… But I'm still not getting, like, really, I'm still only getting Bs and lower As. Like, what's going on? And you you keep getting docked, not on the logic, but how you translated natural language into the logic, for which there is no logical procedure. That translation process is needed in order to get the logical machinery running, but it is not itself governed in a purely logical manner. Uh, It requires this flexibility, this reframing, this insight, this kind of stuff.
0: Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront. There is a lot happening in the US and global economies right now. A lot. That's an understatement. Are we in a recession? Is it a bear market? What's going to happen with inflation? So many questions, so few answers. I can't tell the future. Nobody can, but I can tell you about a great place to earn more on your savings, and that's Wealthfront. Wealthfront is an app that helps you save and invest your money. Right now, you can earn 4.05% APY, that's the annual percentage yield, with the Wealthfront Cash account. That's more than 12 times more interest than if you left your money in a savings account at the average bank, according to FDIC.gov. It takes just a few minutes to sign up, and then you'll immediately start earning 4.05% interest on your savings. And when you open an account today, you'll get an extra $50 bonus with a deposit of $500 or more. Visit wealthfront.com/tim to get started. There are already nearly half a million people using Wealthfront to save more, earn more, and build long-term wealth. So why wait? You can earn 4.05% on your cash today. Plus, it's up to $2 million in FDIC insurance through partner banks. Visit wealthfront.com/tim to get started. That's wealthfront.com/tim. This was a paid endorsement by Wealthfront. I wanted to invoke a word you mentioned in passing with respect to flow states in lectures, which was intuition. And sure. so I wanted to loop that in to ask, well, we could pick and choose. This is an uh, interviewee's choice. So one would be, how do you think about intuition versus logic when it comes to problem solving or searching for meaning or finding meaning, alternative question would be what kinds of problems is logic poorly suited to solving?
1: Yeah, we'll do that. And then I'll tell you what I think intuition is and what the powers and perils of it are. Great. So the search space, right? The search space for very, very many problems, like the chess example, is combinatorially explosive. It's computationally intractable. This is the the seminal work of Newell and Simon, and then Simon and his notion of bounded rationality. And this is the idea that you can't be comprehensively logical. Logic and math are algorithmic. They work in terms of certainty. Certainty requires that you search sometimes all or at least most of the space. And if you tried to do that, you would have committed cognitive suicide. That would be the last (laughs) thing you do, right? And that that can't be a rational way to behave. So bounded rationality is something more like knowing where, when, how, and to what degree Using all the non propositional kinds of knowing to tell you where, when, how, and what degree you should be logical. You have to cultivate these virtues for when you use logic. So that's what rationality is. And that's a much harder problem. When should I be logical? And so you have to ask yourself if I formulate the problem such that the search space could be searched in a relatively exhaustive fashion. And there are algorithms that work that. How many people are present in this conversation? There's an algorithm, counting, two, one, two, we're done. There, that worked. There was nothing with, wrong with doing that, right? But if you try to say, I want to count all the numbers of possible conversations we could have, and thereby try to figure out invariant principles about, uh, through all conversations, it's like, well, what's a conversation? And I've been in many ones, and you know, there's good ones and there's bad ones, but the, the, the good ones, they're sort of the same. They're similar to each other. And the problem with similarity, and this is now the main argument, is if you try to be logical about similarity, you're doomed. What do you mean by logical about similarity? This is an argument made by Nelson Goodman. What a great name for a philosopher, Nelson oh, Goodman. Outstanding. Uh, <laughs> 1972. And the argument goes like this. So identity is to share all properties. Similarity is to share a lot of properties, but not share all properties. Kind of the same as Sesame Street used to say, (laughs) right? So he said, pick up any two objects and you'll find that there's an indefinitely large number of properties they share. So a plum and a lawnmower, they both have curved surfaces, they're both shiny, they're both found in North America, both contain carbon, both weigh more than a paperclip, neither one is a particularly good weapon. How many true things can I say that apply to both those? Indefinitely large. Indefinitely large. Right, and that's the case for anything. So if if you try to have a logic of similarity, it won't help you sort the world at all. So what people rely on is psychological similarity, which is they say, they say to you things like, but none of those properties, and here's the key term, none of those properties are the relevant properties. Those aren't the important ones. And of course, relevance and importance are not features of a proposition. The same proposition can be relevant one minute and irrelevant the next. This is actually a formal argument by Jerry Fodor and others. Relevance is not a logical property. If what we mean by logical properties are syntactic relations within propositions and implication relations between them, you can't capture relevance with those syntactic relations, and therefore, you can't do a logic of similarity. Maybe this is a good place. You can chastise me if it isn't, but to
0: bring in and define intuition and the powers and perils thereof. And to the extent that you could maybe share how you harness the powers and avoid the perils personally, I think that would
1: make it easy to grasp for folks, myself included. I'm deeply influenced by two things Chiksant Mahai's work on flow and uh, Hogarth's work, educating intuition. And he makes a proposal. I think this is the best proposal I've heard. So if we're doing inference to the best explanation, it's the best explanation. Um, so we've had a robust research program from the late 60s, starting with Arthur Reber, for what's called implicit learning. So I'm sorry, I need a minute to sort of describe the experimental paradigm for this. Sure. So what you do is you create an artificial grammar for how you're allowed to string numbers and letters together. Like the grammar might have the rule, you can't have two odd numbers beside each other, you can't have two vowels beside each other, you can't have more than four consonants in a row or something like this. And you make these, by completely arbitrary artificial grammar, you make these number letter strings that are 9 or 12 long. So you can't hold them easily in working memory or anything like that. And so what you do is you give people, you say... This is one, this is one, not quite this fast, but I'm just doing it, right? You hold up these strings and you get people to watch or look at them. And there's various modifications. Sometimes you give feedback, and, but, but that's just the basic paradigm. So you're not giving them the rules in advance. Is that, no, is that correct? No, you, Okay, oh, so this oh. is purely deductive. You're just giving them examples and saying this yeah, well, yeah. is- Well, is I'm gonna is... say it's not deductive, but- Oh, it's but not, oh, okay. They're purely just doing, they're doing this. Okay. And I'll say what I think it is in a minute. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and I'll say why it's not deductive because of an experimental variation. Okay. okay. So I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm not just going to swipe that aside. I'm going to address <laughs> your, your point. Okay. So you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. And then what you do is you say, now I'm going to give you a bunch of strings. And what you do is some of those strings are new. They haven't appeared yet, but they're, they're generated by the same artificial grammar. Right. And then some are generated by a completely alternative or even randomly generated. And then you present them to people and you say, which of these new strings belongs with the old ones? And people reliably score well above chance on this, well above chance. So what people have is the capacity without explicit awareness or deliberate effort, they can pick up on very complex patterns. Now, why isn't it deduction? Because if you do the following, and you say, I'm going to give you the strings, and I want you to figure out the rules that are generating the strings, their performance degrades, and they actually fall below chance. They get really worse. Uh, They get all tangled up in themselves. Yes. So, what Hogarth proposes is that intuition is a result of implicit learning. You're picking up on very complex patterns without explicit awareness or deliberate effort. You know how close to stand to somebody at a funeral. But it depends on their status, their closeness to the person, their emotional state, how you're feeling. It depends on all of these variables. It depends on what part of the funeral it, it is. It depends on potential religious. Like there's all these variables and they're interacting in complex, dynamic ways. And you've picked that up and you don't know how you've picked it up. You don't know where and when. So you just get the intuition. I should stand this close and you do it, and you're right. Now, what's the peril of this? So that's its power. You pick up on complex patterns, and you don't do it deductively, and I gave you the evidence for that. So, what's the peril with this? And this is Hogarth's work, and I think it's powerful. Implicit learning doesn't care what patterns it picks up. (laughs) Right. It doesn't distinguish real causal patterns from correlational patterns. And there's a lot more complex correlational patterns that aren't real causal patterns. And so we pick up on all kinds of complex patterns that are not real, and we form intuitions around them. But when we don't like our intuition, we don't call it intuition. We call it bias or prejudice or racism (laughs) or sexism or a whole bunch of other things, right? And so Hogarth says, well, what should we do? We can't replace implicit learning with explicit learning. What can we do explicitly? And he says, well, what we can do is set, we can explicitly set up the situation in which we're doing implicit learning that replicates how science distinguishes cause from correlation. Because that's what science is. It's a practice for distinguishing cause from correlation. So what are those? Well, you need clear feedback. You need clear information. You need clear and tightly coupled feedback. Error has to matter. You can falsify the experiment. And you set that up. And if you're learning in those situations, chances are your implicit learning will track causal patterns rather than correlational. And then you ask me, how do you do that, John? Well, here's John's answer. Mahai says, how do you get into the flow state? What are the informational constraints? The information has to be clear, it has to be tightly coupled, and error has to matter. The exact three conditions that Hogarth proposes for making sure you're doing good implicit learning are exactly the conditions that get people reliably into the flow state. And so we've published on that. What flow state is, is an evolutionary marker that you're getting a lot of insight And you're getting a lot of insight within implicit learning that is probably tracking real causal relationships. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it, because chances are you're really figuring out the environment in a powerful way. What have you done with this knowledge? How has that informed your behaviors or beliefs as you operate in the world? I try to make sure that we're setting up the explicit circumstance for flow states that have a lot of those conditions in them. This goes towards work I'm doing on shared flow states when people are getting into dialogically flowed shared flow states, dialogos. And what are the contexts we can build around that so that we can get people more reliably having insight cascades and tracking real patterns of sense-making as opposed to weird, funky, correlational things? I am going to double-click on dialogos
0: because I've mentioned (laughs) dialogue and wanting to get into the etymology of that just because I'm a nerd about all that stuff. But, But before we get there... Could you give a personal example of how you have used this insight and knowledge based on the studies and the work of these various people you've, you've mentioned, and of course, your own publications? How has that informed
1: how you operate in the world or make decisions? It's giving me a way of challenging a certain kind of decadent romanticism in the culture, which says that you should always trust your intuition. There is no panacea faculty, there is no panacea practice, no free lunch theorem, and I have become almost like a preacher or something, I, like I've become almost evangelical about trying to say, stop demonizing any faculty and stop deifying any faculty. Your intuition will lead you as much wrong as your reason, as much wrong as your emotions, as much wrong as whatever, as much wrong as your logic. Logic does not tell you how to go from a weaker logic to a stronger logic. I can do all the possible manipulations within predicate logic, and it won't get me to modal logic. I have to do something outside of that to actually increase my logical competence. So there's no panacea. There's no panacea. So that has become, I have taken that up as a theme, and I do it for myself. This is why I advocate very strongly for, and I was fortunate to be taught, An ecology of practices. I practice a bunch of practices that have complementary strengths and weaknesses that are constantly checking each other and calling each other out and constraining each other and pointing out errors in each other, like an ecology, you know, how you have the checks and balances in a biological ecosystem. That is how it had a huge impact on how I try to cultivate wisdom and virtue and how I recommend to others how they should do it. I strongly advocate for practicing an ecology of practices that is well-designed and what are some of the design principles for a good ecology of practices. And then I feed that back into my own practices and how I try to teach other people. All right. So I would love to know what questions
0: you have asked yourself to improve your ability to spot spurious or at the very least unhelpful forms of pattern recognition, right? So the intuition we want to avoid and how you've done that, because I've observed certainly, and I'm sure you have, and I'm sure I do it in my own way, people who are very methodical about testing in some scientific, empirical fashion, causality and say engineering. So they're they're doing split testing in their job as an engineer. And then as soon as they jump into the world of, say, nutrition or fill in the blank, it all falls apart and they just seem to founder in spotting all these sort of correlations that they turn into causation in a really kind of
1: sloppy way. And I'm sure I do it as well. So how have you improved your ability to spot that? I don't want to in any way try to convey that I, I don't fall prey to this. How have I tried to address it is how I'll, I'll frame the question you have asked. Perfect. Okay, and so first of all, that issue that we were talking about earlier, how pervasively does your practice transfer to multiple domains and to multiple levels of your psyche? How much does it engage the non-propositional kinds of knowing? How much is it engaging the ability to metacognitively shift between perspectives, et cetera, for exactly that reason? Secondly, it's not the questions you answer, it's practices you do at length for, for a considerable amount of time. I practice. First of all, I, I practiced it very explicitly for like two or three years and, you know, and this overlaps significantly with stoicism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I practice active open-mindedness. I'm a cognitive scientist. Learn about the biases, and this, this is how you get into it. Learn about the biases and first spot them in other people. You'll be astonishingly good at that. Oh, confirmation <laughs> bias, my side bias, blah, 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 You're really good at fundamental attribution error. You're like, you're really good at it with other people, right? And get <laughs> sort of like, allow yourself to be sort of overconfident a bit. And then practice act, the second stage, which is try to note every day, a bias in your own, and actively counteract it. Oh, wait, this is a confirmation bias. Where would I look for evidence that could disconfirm this? Or who could I talk to who would challenge me on this? You have to practice it. It's not about getting a rule or a technique of question. It's about developing a deeply ingrained habit that helps to work. And then, and and in concert with this, and this is also from Stoicism, Stoicism is the philosophy religion of internalizing Socrates, And, you know, practicing, internalizing Socrates. This is uh, Antisthenes? Am I getting that pronunciation right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Right. What did you learn from Socrates? I learned how to dialogue with myself. But he didn't mean the way we all talk to ourselves in our head all day long. And you have to practice that. You have to practice it on your own. You have to practice it with others. And I've been doing that, and I've been developing ways of honing that, like, We do these weekend workshops. I do it with Guy Sennstock and Christopher Master Pietro. We take people through a meditation practice, a contemplation practice, then various circling practices, then various paraphrasing practices, and then we get them to do sort of a shared Lexio Divina around a philosophical text. Ooh, Lexio Divina. I don't know what that means, but I like the sound of it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then we take them into a a particular way— of engaging in dialectic into dialogue, And you have to practice this and you have to read the dialogues and you have to internalize the sage. And this yeah. is one of the, just like the, the athlete has to internalize the coach, just like the child has to internalize the parent. And that again, is not a, it's not a magic technique. It's something you have to practice like consistently as a way of life. And the degree to which I've internalized Socrates and the degree to which I've cultivated habits of active open-mindedness, the degree to which I've, sought out the company of people who will challenge me in the right ways. Cause you know, people can be also criticize you in the wrong ways. So it takes discernment. That's how I'm trying to address what you've asked me. All right. So I want
0: to attempt to create a bridge between what you just said and do so for the listeners and to do so by giving some examples of the forms of exercises that you mentioned yeah. In passing, and this is also a way of delivering on the promise I made earlier to people that we would get into meditation versus contemplation. So, sure. could you give an example? And I apologize if this is sort of a asking for a heavy lift, but yeah, I think it would be helpful for me and hopefully for my best. listeners. So, so you mentioned meditation, I'm sure I'm going to miss something, contemplation, circling, I don't know what that means, yeah, uh, yeah. paraphrasing, I believe, yeah. Lexio Divina, am I getting that right? Well,
1: actually, the, the practice is a variation
0: on it called philosophical fellowship. Okay, perfect. So could you walk us through these and just give an example of an exercise, what that
1: might look like in each of those? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, first of all, the distinction between meditation and contemplation. So I know this is audio only, so I'll, I, I wear glasses. And so I'm. I'm, I'm and, and we'll probably also use the
0: video, but just for those people who, who only have the audio, it's always helpful to, right. to, to tell them what's going on.
1: Yes. You know, I've been talking throughout about how you frame situations, what, what you make salient, what you background and what you ignore. So think about that, like the lens and the frame of my glasses, right? And I'm not aware of my lenses or my frame because I'm aware through them beyond them and by means of them. So they're transparent to me. Now sometimes, and what I'm doing right now, everyone, I'm taking my glasses off because there might be something on my lenses and now they're not transparent to me. I'm not looking through them, I'm looking at them. That's what meditation is. It's about trying to become aware, step back and look at your mental framing. So what you do is, for example, you try to get people to look at something they're normally looking through, like their sensations. So for example... I teach people how to center, but like they're following their breath and you want to follow the whole of your breath going in and you want to feel the sensations of the breath and of the expansion of your abdomen and the sensations of your abdomen contracting and the breath coming out. And what happens is you're paying attention to the sensations and very quickly your mind goes to, no, I want to look through things. I want to look at the world. I should be doing my laundry or when is the meditation going to be done? Or I wonder if Susan still likes me. And then what you do is you step back and look at that distraction. You don't look at what you're thinking about. You label the process, thinking, imagining, hoping, wondering, and then you return your attention to your breath. And so what you're doing is you're learning to step back and look at your framing. Now, think about this, even in the analogy, if I just take my glasses off and look at them, and maybe I wipe them and I wipe them and I wipe them and I wipe them, how do I know if I've actually cleaned them? What do I need to do? Gotta put them back on. You gotta put them back on and see if you now see more clearly and deeply than you used to before. That is contemplation. It comes from the Latin word contemplatio, which is a translation of the Greek word theoria, which is where we get our word theory from, which means to look deeply into reality. So vipassana is this act of, I'm stepping back and looking at, but meta is a contemplative. I'm trying to see if, how, can I see you better than I used to? So in meta, I'm trying to open up and see if I can see you better. Or I may contemplate the impermanence of existence. I'm trying to see, I'm trying to, not. I'm not, I'm not just thinking or saying, I'm trying to realize the impermanence of things. That's a contemplative act. It's a direction outward. And for
0: folks who aren't familiar with meta, is it fair to... Describe that as loving-kindness
1: meditation? Well, it depends what you mean, and this is, and this is where the controversy. <laughs> if you think of loving-kindness as a particular good emotional state you're going to get into, I would argue you're confusing a method with a goal. Okay. So positive emotions, they, this is Fredrickson and other work, they open you up. They make you curious. They, uh, they afford wondering. They allow you to question things. They put you into an explore mode. But it's the exploration. That's important. What I'm actually trying to do in meta is I'm trying to open myself up so that this overlaps with stoicism too, right? So the stoics have this idea that whenever we're going into situations we're automatically assuming identities and assigning identities. I'm the professor, you're the student, or I'm the the scientist and you're the famous podcaster or whatever, right? And we're doing that and you know, I'm this and this is a tool, a water bottle. But of course it's not it's not that in and of itself. That co-identification process is happening mostly mindlessly, automatically, and reactively. And the, the Stoics were trying to get us aware of this. And in meta, what you're trying to do is get aware of what identity am I assigning to you? and What identity am I assuming? And how is that locking down the situation? And how can I open it up in an exploratory way so that more of your suchness, what you are beyond my assigned categories and identities, can start to shape How I see you and who I am and can be starts to be shaped by resonating with that. And now I'm trying to see more deeply into you. The Buddha warns against positive emotions just as much as he warns against negative emotions. The idea, I don't like the North American interpretation of meta as I want to really feel feel really good about people. I think that confuses it with Christian notions of forgiveness and other things. What it is is. Can I come to a place where your identity and my identity can be born afresh right here and right now, and what that can do for transforming both you and I as a real possibility?
0: Okay, thank you for that clarification. And it, it makes sense that, I mean, there would be some conflating with what you mentioned with the, especially with the labeling of loving kindness
1: by a lot of people in the United States, just given the, given the history. Can I riff on that just one second? Because that goes towards a fundamental understanding of, misunderstanding of love. Love is not a feeling, but love is not even an emotion. When I love somebody, that can make me angry, jealous, sad, happy, joyous. Love is an existential binding. It's an existential stance. It's a commitment to this co-identification process and it being something by which each of us can bring out the good and cultivate deeper personhood for each other. Love isn't an emotion, and it isn't a feeling. So thinking that loving kindness is cultivating a particular emotion is not only mistaking the Buddhist idea, it's just misunderstanding what love is. Love yeah. isn't an emotion. It isn't a feeling. It's an existential stance of commitment to binding your identity to the identity of something or someone else. So meditation,
0: contemplation, I'm not sure what you came next, paraphrasing. Circling circling what would be an example
1: of circling so that's where you've got you got to talk to guy senstock at some point circling is this practice and the best way i could describe it and it takes there's a lot of exercises and skills you have to build to do the practice well so i don't want people to misunderstand i'm not i'm just talking for simplicity right i'm not giving you the full secret sauce or something like that the best way to describe it is how can you and i get into you know what stereoscopic vision is? The left yes. and right visual fields, and they, they integrate so you get depth. So I want stereoscopic mindfulness. And what does that mean? I want mindfulness into me and mindfulness into you in a way that's affording you to get mindfulness into you and mindfulness into me, and then we resonate on that. Like, I noticed that you leaned forward and did this. What's happening in you right now as you're doing that? And then yep. you tell me, and then you tell me what you're noticing in me. And you get this kind of accelerating, mutually disclosing mindfulness enhancement. And it's very, very powerful practice. And then what you can do is you can use that training to really strengthening the listening skill. So you'd practice circling with people. They start to pick up on this kind of, what is, it's interesting, Tim, what people report is, they discover a kind of intimacy they didn't know about. It's not sexual intimacy. It's not friendship intimacy, but it's this other kind of intimacy. And they say paradoxical things like this regularly. They say, this new kind of intimacy, but I've always been looking for it. Like they didn't know it, but they've always been looking for it, right? Sounds like a psychedelic experience (laughs) in some ways. Well, I don't think that's actually off the mark. I've got a hypothesis. You're doing circling with multiple people and you're having to do this multiple switching up perspectives and inhabiting and indwelling of other people and letting them indwell you. And it's getting areas of the brain to talk to each other that normally don't talk to each other. Very, very similar to a psychedelic experience. I'm not going to say when I have done psilocybin, (laughs) uh, but there was phenomenological overlap from my experience of that and my experience in deep flow. Yeah. And then you move people to paraphrasing. So they get Mm -hmm. the circling ability. They're into that. And then what you do is I'll say something, and you stop me after, this, and you have to paraphrase back to me with using as few of my words as possible,
0: until oh, I agree that that's you an have, interesting
1: constraint. Yeah, <laughs> right. You can't just parrot back from memory, right? Yeah. You have to understand and convey, and the, and the person gives you feedback. No, you didn't get it. Yes, you did. And you practice doing that. What is the intent? The objective. The intent is to realize that one half of communication is listening. (laughs) (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) Which is easy to say, but hard. So you slow down and you make Mm -hmm. space and you let it impact you more deeply. Yeah, you really have to slow down to operate within that constraint, not using the same language. Exactly, exactly. And then you move into philosophical fellowship. It's a thing I've derived from Rand Lahav's philosophical contemplative companionship, or I forget what he calls it. He and I have emailed. So what I'm doing is not the same, but it was inspired by him. So it goes something like this. You pick a philosophical text, and you prime people into this. We're not going to be reading this text in order to get information from it, we're going to be reading this text in order to be transformed by it. We're going to use this text as a way of trying to presence a sage. It's almost like a secular seance, right? You're going to, pre- <laughs> you're going to presence a sage, right? So that, remember we talked about earlier, internalizing the sage. That yep. You really can't do that unless, you know, the presence of the perspectival knowing of the sage is available to you. So what happens is, first of all, you read the text very slowly, And then the speaker will pick out a phrase that he or she thinks conveys it. And then everybody chants it in sequence, and they chant it, and they're trying to convey as much and also resonate with what they're sensing other people are conveying. So it's like jazz, and you do this. And then you move into simple speech. Everybody is allowed to say no more than three sentences about what is being provoked, invoked, and evoked in their interaction with the text. And the task is, I want you to convey as much as you possibly can in as few words as possible. And so everybody does this, but you can't just do it atomically. You have to pick up on what other people have said when you do your simple speech. And you do that for several rounds. And people, and what happens is people are also asked, try to sense how all of these different perspectives converge back to Spinoza or Plato or or Bruber, or whoever it is. And then you're doing that. And then you move into extended speech. Everybody's now allowed to give three or four sentences, or a bit more, and open it up. And they can even relate it to some experience that they've had in their life. And then you move into free speech, where people just talk about it. And what happens is people get a sense of the text coming alive, and Spinoza being present or boober being present, obviously not literally, but in this sense of there's something about the intersection in the we space that gives them a sense of what what was the mind that generated or is the origin of all of this. And you resonate with it and you pick it up and it gives you an opportunity to internalize the sage. I would love to try that. Have any
0: of those experiences been so memorable that to this day you remember a specific phrase from a text that help to catalyze just an extraordinary experience. Are there any that you've seen really
1: light things on fire in an interesting way? I think one in Spinoza was God is related to the world the way the mind is related to the body. Ooh. Can you say that one more time? I I'd have to have to marinate with that one. God is related to the world in the same way the mind is related to the body. I forget where that's from. I think it might have been uh, from the emendation of the intellect. I'm not sure. I would definitely need more time to,
0: to ramp up my RPMs to begin to chew on that, but what does that mean to you?
1: That phrase means—he's trying to challenge Descartes within a Cartesian framework, which is part of the brilliance of Spinoza. That's why his book is called The Ethics, but he presents it as, like Euclid's elements, he presents it as this completely logical argument with theorems and proofs. So God is to the world as the mind is to the body? Yeah, because what he's trying to say there— and by the way, he's not the only person. Say I can find similar things in Maximus the Confessor from the Orthodox Christian tradition. But what he's trying to say is you have to understand that the order of causes—that's your body—and the order of intelligibility are actually—they have to fundamentally, well, be in contact. They have to conform to each other, or we're lost. No knowledge is possible for us. So the mind, which is the tracking of intelligibility— And the body, which is the laying out of causal patterns, have to interpenetrate and map onto each other in this profound way, kind of like the way the software and the hardware mesh together within a computer. And then that is how God is related to the universe. God is related to the cosmos. That God isn't some other thing. God is the intelligibility that's non-logically identical with the causal patterns of things. Could you
0: restate that just for, for a knuckle-dragger like me? Remember, I'm from Long Island originally. <laughs> How do you relate to God now? I'd be so curious to know if you use that word at all, if, it's, yeah. if it is a word that you use, what would be a simple way of describing to a you know, five-year-old—yes, <laughs> I am comparing myself to a five-year-old—what that
1: means to you? I appreciate the framing. I'm a non-theist, and this is the idea that there are a shared set of presuppositions of Modern theism, ancient theism is a very different form of theism, but modern theism and modern atheism shared presuppositions. And they go like this something like, God is the supreme being, the ultimate being, the super thing. And the best way to relate to God is by having beliefs about him, her, it. And that sacredness is to have true beliefs about this super being and to govern your life accordingly. And the theist and the atheist both agree to that definition and the theist says yes and the atheist says no. And the non-theist says, I reject all of those presuppositions. I don't think of ultimate reality as a thing. I don't think of it as a being. I think of it as the ground of being. And being is a no-thingness. It is not a thing. It is that in which all things come to be. Being isn't a being. This isn't something you, you can just get it's very, to by Taoist it's very, very Taoist. Also, very Taoist. The Tao, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao, right? And the naming is the myriad way. And the emptiness of the cup is what makes the cup function. All of these non thingness metaphors, it's like water. They're all trying to get you to understand that being, the really real, isn't a thing. It's a no thingness, which is not the same thing as nothingness. And that we can enter into a profound relationship with that no-thingness. Let me give you an analogy. I love my partner. She's an amazing woman, and I'm fortunate to be with her. I do not think I will ever completely grasp or understand her because there is something about her that always is transcending herself and transcending my understanding of her. There is something in that sense properly mysterious about her. Any frame I put around her— she shines into it, but she also withdraws from it further into the mystery that she is. And that's why I am continue to fall in love with her. And so, that mystery of no-thingness is something into which we can fall deeply in love. The no-thingness in me. For example, what's the no-thingness in you? Every time you step back, remember the glasses, and look at yourself, there I am. James makes this move. Other people, William James, other people— that's the observed self, but that's never the observing self. The observing self can never be brought into view. That is not anything that can be seen by you. It is that which makes any seeable thing seeable to you. Right? There's a no-thingness in you, and that no-thingness in you can come into deep resonance with the no-thingness of ultimate reality, such that you fall in love with it. And this is not about belief. This is about deeply coupling so that it discloses itself more and more to you as you are drawn beyond yourself more and more. It's like the way you fall in love with another person. And so you can learn to fall in love with the depths of reality. It's like... It is a source of intelligibility that is never exhausted, but it is not itself directly intelligible, because if it is, there would have to be a principle behind it that made it intelligible. It is the principle of intelligibility, so it is not itself intelligible, and that is precisely what makes it sacred. I reciprocally love it, open myself up to it. It is an inexhaustible fount of new intelligibility, new insight, new connectedness, new meaning, and I think that's a proper understanding of sacred that isn't primarily about believing propositions. So I'm a non-theist. And I understand God to be a way of pointing to that. Great. Very, very helpful. And as you're talking about the sacred,
0: uh, and that maybe I'm already losing track of the definition that you just provided, but I'm wondering if Tai Chi, or let me put it in, in some context, if you experience the sacred, if one of the indicators or precursors of experiencing the sacred is a sense of timelessness and if that's something that you seek or experience in your sort of ecology of
1: practices
0: including tai chi i'm wondering if that factors in somehow
1: yes it does and many traditions sort of do this timelessness and that's the proper meaning of eternity eternity doesn't mean everlastingness it means not bound by time and space like two plus two equals four or E equals MC squared, for that matter. Where is it? Where, like, where is it? When is it? Those questions don't make any sense, right? Now, that is a way of bringing you into—because eternity is timeless, spaceless, it's no thingness. It doesn't have a spatial, temporal location like a physical thing. Like, for example, where is E equals MC squared? It's everywhere and nowhere. It doesn't make any sense, So the realization of eternity, timelessness, you aptly described it, not unending time, that is a way of opening up to how being is distinct from beings. But you have to make the move. This is Plato. You have to ascend out of the cave, but you also have to return back down into the cave, which is you also have to see that being also is within and includes the beings. The sacred is within everything, but not enclosed by it. It is beyond everything, but not excluded. If that makes any sense. The timelessness is a move. It's dialogical. You come out, and then you come back, and you see. You see the world in a grain of sand, and heaven in a wild flower. You hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and spend eternity in an hour. That's how you get to the cultivation of wisdom. Part of the reason I asked is that, for instance, I have friends who surf
0: and yes they self-describe or describe their experiences of flow as time stopping or not existing and they'll also say you know the ocean is my church i just came back from a trip where a mountain guide said you know the mountains are my church and so that to me brings up the question of whether one worthwhile pursuit would be trying to find activities that provoke this sense of timelessness to fill the void that was left when religion vacated the premises for so many people in the modern world. I don't know if you have any thoughts
1: on that. I have a lot of thoughts on that. That's a big (laughs) part of what went on in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. I mean, I think there's a continuum from insight to flow to mystical experiences to higher states of consciousness and i think you want to expand your cognitive flexibility your cognitive competence so that you can experience the whole continuum and you want to situate it within an ecology of practices that is guarding you against self deceptive bullshit and all that kind of thing but those you know flow and awe and profound senses of at one ment or a sense of non duality So, I use the term for this sense of connectedness, religio, which is one of the purported possible etymological roots of the word religion. That's what they, and and I think what people are saying is, I got this profound sense of connected to to myself and to the depths of reality when I'm in the mountains or when I'm the, the ocean, right? And, you know, Aquinas called God an ocean of being, and I'm connected to this. And what this does is it gives me a sense of being deeply coupled to what is deeply real, within and without. And I think there are ecologies of practices that can do this for people outside of an explicit religious framework. Now, I would say that dismissing the religious traditions as if there's nothing we need to learn from them, I think that's also a mistake. I think we should respect, dialogue with them and learn as much as we can. And I've said this before, if people take from my work a way of how they can return to a religious home, they get more out of Islam, they get more out of Buddhism, they get more out of Christianity. Great. I'm not in dispute with that. But I also want to help afford an ecology of practices for the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S-S, the people who say they have no official religious affiliation for all kinds of reasons. Is there a way for them to find—I'll use the metaphor your friends gave—is there a way for them to find a church or temple or mosque, which they mean a set of practices that gives them that profound religio? Yes, there is, and this is important. The solution to the meaning crisis and nihilism is not to brow people with argument or legislation. It's to enable them to fall in love with the depths of reality within and without and between. Again, that is what we need. Let me ask you, this is going to
0: maybe seem like a non sequitur, but I I imagine you have some thoughts. First, as a bit of background, I know many religious people all over the world. And the connective tissue, the pattern that I think I have observed in those who seem to be, and this is a bit of a uh, content at peace, is among other things, a strong sense of community. And the specific community I'd like to ask you about are sufis. Ah. <laughs> one of my most fascinating acquaintances is, is a well, I don't know if he would call himself a Sufi, but he certainly studies Sufism and is deeply immersed. He lives in the Middle East. What are your thoughts, observations if if any?
1: A couple of things from my biography. When I went to Shiatsu boot camp, I learned Jatsu as I said, one of the people teaching was a, was a Sufi master and huge impact on me. My partner, her father his father was within the Sufi tradition, because they're Persian, and so Sufism, very profound, and a lot of the poetry that they treat, and I mean this as a compliment, not as an insult, they treat the poetry religiously, Hafez and Rumi and other people, and a lot of it is, maybe not directly Sufi, but deeply influenced by Sufism. Deeply influenced. And Korban, who has influenced me profoundly around the imaginal, also deeply influenced by Sufism. What was that name? Uh, Corbin. Henry Corbin. Uh, C-O-R-B-I-N. He's the guy that uh, sort of coined the difference between the imaginary and the imaginal, uh, things like that. And then I do a practice. One of my practices is what I call responsive poesis. Poesis is the Greek word for poetry, but it also means making, the way we make new sense that we didn't have before. And what I'll do is I'll read in a Lexio Divina fashion, this not reading for information, but reading for transformation. I'll read a Sufi poem And then I'll try and write a poem in response. It's not trying to parody it or parrot it or repeat it. I'm responding to it. It's responsive poesis. Well, it's like the paraphrasing. It's very interesting. Yes, yes. Very, very. But not just paraphrasing, but even more. But like, I've really heard you, and now this is how I can respond to what you've said. Yeah. And uh, so the Sufism is really important to me in that sense. Now, you have to be really careful. You don't want to engage in inappropriate cultural appropriation. You don't want to commodify things. You want to receive things as they're given and in respect. But for me, Sufism is important because it represents, well, part of a thesis I've been arguing for, which is Neoplatonism has this tremendous capacity to enter into reciprocal reconstruction with other powerful worldviews, cultural frameworks. It did that with Christianity. It did that with Judaism, Kabbalah. It does it with Islam and Sufism. Sufism is directly, they will even talk about Plotinus. Neoplatonism is also capable of entering into reciprocal reconstruction with science. It did it at the late Renaissance and helped give birth to science, by the way. Kepler and Galileo are deeply influenced by Neoplatonism. And it did it at the beginning of the 20th century. A lot of the people around the Einsteinian revolution are deeply influenced by neoplatonism and things that are somewhat similar like vedanta and other things like that. And so this is really powerful. I should have asked this earlier, but I was planning on coming back to
0: it. So neoplatonism, I understand oh well, I think I understand what neo means and certainly plato <laughs> but neoplatonism, what is that for those of us
1: including myself who honestly could not give a definition. So it's the grand unified field theory of ancient philosophy as a way of life, not academic philosophy, but philosophy as a way of life for the cultivation of wisdom and meaning and virtue, individually and collectively. What it does is it integrates Socratic Platonic spirituality with Aristotelian ideas about knowledge as conformity, contact with Stoic principles of how to properly cultivate virtue, and metacognitive abilities, and it integrated them all together, and not just as some Lego blocks being put together, but organically, so they all came to, I would argue, a greater fruition within that integration. And so it became this grand, unified, powerful, living framework, so much so that when it encounters major world religions, they typically can't ignore it or dispense with it. They typically enter into profound integration with it like in Christianity, like in Judaism, like in Sufism, like in science, and it looks like if Thomas Plant is right, along the Silk Road, possibly with Vedanta, possibly with Buddhism.
0: Okay, so we are going to continue this thread, but I wanted to pause to return to the personal, if you wouldn't mind. I don't mind. Okay, and you'll have to pardon maybe the way that this question is couched, but I just read Lonesome Dove, which is 950 or 980 pages. And now I'm watching the three-part television series with Robert Duvall and so on, which is very good. But I'm noticing things have to get omitted. Many, 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 many things have to get omitted. And so they're trying to hit the most seminal moments from this Pulitzer Prize-winning novel about the American West. If one were to make a film about your search for meaning or your creation of meaning over your life, what would those seminal
1: moments be? What would some of those milestones be? Leaving Christianity, encountering Socrates, finding the Tai Chi meta-Vipassana ecology of practices, reading Pierre Hadeau and rediscovering ancient philosophy, not as discourse, but as a way of life, Discovering 4E Cognitive Science that gave me a way of talking about wisdom and self-transcendence and flow and embodiment that was consonant with what I was learning from these two wisdom traditions, the Socratic Neoplatonic tradition and the sort of proto-Zen Buddhist Taoist. And then teaching a course at U of T called Buddhism and Cognitive Science a student then coming to me after taking the course and saying, "You should put this on a U- as a YouTube series." That became Awakening from the Meaning Crisis because of that meeting. People who became very interested in these ideas about ecologies of practices. And we didn't do the final one, by the way. We didn't do dialectic into dialogos. Yes, we should do that. <laughs> well, maybe another time. But anyways, yeah, right? and, and meeting people like Guy, uh, meeting Christopher, Master Pietro. People say this, and again, asking for charity from the audience, right? Because it, this could sound ridiculously pretentious, but people often say, if I'm Socrates, and that's why I aspire to be at least, Chris is Plato. I totally agree with that. The natural lyricism, the eloquence, the gift of reflection, the authenticity, the depth, meeting him, getting to work with him, meeting of course my current partner, that would be, I guess, the arc right now.
0: Could you say more about, if I'm getting the pronunciation right, Pierre Hadot? Is that right? Yes.
1: Oh, Pierre Hadot. When I was asked uh, Jules Evans on Rebel Wisdom, the book that changed my life, I picked uh, What is Ancient Philosophy by Pierre Hadot. That book and philosophy as a way of life. And this is where Hadot brings out that philosophy is not primarily about the propositional, it's not primarily about declarative discourse. Philosophy is a way of life in which you're training skills. States of mind, perspectives, traits of characters, and that those are all the components of virtue. So that, you're, that That's what philosophy as a way of life is about. It's about what Hadot called spiritual exercises by which people entered into this process of profound aspirational transformation for the cultivation of virtue and the deepening of the love of wisdom. And this just blew me away because it represented what I had actually saw in ancient philosophy, but what had not been provided to me by academic philosophy. And so that just opened up so much for me.
0: All right. So books. You are a connoisseur of books. You're an avid reader. You also have an extensive reading list on your website. You have the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis book list. If you were only allowed to choose two books that you could personally reread from that. It doesn't have to be exactly two. It could be one, it could be three. It doesn't really matter. But you were disallowed from ever rereading other books in the list. You only got to choose two or three. Which one, two or three, would you choose,
1: potentially? Plato's Dialogues and Plotinus's Aeneid. What are the reasons for those two? Those books are sacred to me. Remember I talked about sacredness as a, an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility. This reciprocal opening with the world. I read Plato, it transforms me. I go out and see things in the world I hadn't seen. I live that way, and then that feeds back into me and transforms me. And then I read the text as a transformed person, and I see things I hadn't seen before. That opens me up. I now go out into, and that just keeps happening. And it's been happening since I first read the Republic, since I first read the Symposium. I read Plotinus's Aeneid on the nature of beauty or on the nature of one and contemplation, on dialect, any of these great Aeneids. And what's astonishing about Plotinus and its Neoplatonism, so you need to be educated in Platonism, Stoicism, Aristotelianism. So I don't recommend people just pick up Plotinus. Read some good secondary sources on it first. But imagine you could read a text that was simultaneously a profound philosophical argument, and a spiritual exercise that was transforming you the way meditation and contemplation do, and they were woven together with irreplaceable artistry. That's Plotinus. That should be the, the book blurb
0: on the back of the cover. <laughs> <laughs> if you could only choose two poets to ah nourish your soul, for lack of a better way to phrase it, It could be two to three again. We don't
1: need to be exact about it, but who would make the short list for you? Rilke is first and foremost for me. I won't get it perfectly, but the poem that goes something like, ah, not to be cut off, even by the slightest partition from the law of the stars. What is it? What is it? If not intensified sky hurled through with birds and filled with the winds of homecoming. And Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, that's what the experience of the <laughs> sacred is like. Or you read yeah. the archaic bust of Apollo and he does all this thing and you're just, you're drawn into this statue and it's coming alive. And then he suddenly breaks it and says, you must change your life. That's the deep response to beauty. That's the most appropriate response to beauty. You must change your life. So Rilke, hands down. The second, the second one is a bit of a toss up for me. Probably Blake. Blake has a profound I quoted Blake a few minutes ago but you know Gerard Manley Hopkins and Yeats also really really important for me
0: do you think it's important to find poetry that resonates for yourself predominantly in your native language no roke it doesn't
1: which is cuz Röke is in german I did enough German way back when in order to get my PhD a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But yeah, I can't read German now. Certainly not the way you need to be able to read it to pick up on poetry. But Rilke still just, Rilke still moves me profoundly, even in translation. All right. Fantastic. Thank you. And, uh,
0: you know, funny enough, I was listening to Coltrane jazz for this conversation, which maybe was a good warm up for for the conversation. <laughs> and I have a new collection of translations. I want to get the name of the author correct. So it is a new translation of Rumi poetry.
1: Oh, yes, yeah.
0: and it is by I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but Haleh Liza and is a Persian or Persian American, I mean, her knowledge of the language so Mm. enriches how she is able to convey passages that could be real stumbling blocks for anyone who is basing their translation off of another translation or who is a non-native speaker. It's very hard to translate period, but it's even harder to translate poetry. It's like, do you choose the cadence? Do you choose to try to match the alliteration or what the equivalent of alliteration would be? It's such a formidable task. I was very impressed by the book. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you're open to a few more questions. I'm finally. I'm enjoying this. Let's keep going. Wonderful. 4E. I think this is important for us to discuss. What
1: are the 4Es? So, I think we should have six E's, but uh, I'll tell you what the standard four E's are. <laughs> and then the bonus two. I'm into it. So, this is the idea that cognition is inherently embodied, first E, embedded, coupled to the environment, second E, enacted. Cognition is something that you are doing, it's not something you have. It's between you and the world, not within you. And then extended. Most of our cognition is not done inside of us, it's done through the world. This includes other people. So for example, you and I are having a conversation right now, we're solving a problem, and this is depending on people building computers, setting up the internet, setting up Zoom or Riverside. Neither one of us invented the English language, etc. And all of these things, and even literacy, literacy is not natural, but we internalize it, but it allows us to link our cognition in profound ways. And so most of our problem solving is done in an extended way. I guess the classic book by this is Cognition in the Wild by Ed Hutchins, where he talks about the fact that nobody, no person navigates a ship. There's a whole bunch of different people doing different roles and a whole bunch of equipment, and they form a dynamical system that is actually responsible for navigating the ship. Myself and one of my, my dear friends and great co-authors, Dan Schiappi, we've published three papers on... NASA scientists moving the rovers around on Mars. And how do they form this distributed cognition, especially with that huge time gap, right? The time delay. And how do they make it work? And how does that distributed cognition work? And because they get very powerful sense of an emergent kind of we agency that's above and beyond just adding the parts. So that's the extended. So embodied. Embodied means, like I said, you don't have a body. You are a body, and your mind and your body are not separate things. They're different aspects of what you are. And people may say, what do you mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, remember I said earlier, you have this problem you're facing, which is, what do I pay attention to? What do I focus my attention to? What do I ignore? And this is not cold calculation. It's also your affect. It means what do you care about and what do you not care about? Reed Montague, the neuroscientist, put it really well. He said, the difference between us and computers is we care about information and they don't. <laughs> right? And that's our great strength and our great weakness. Now, the thing is, why do you care about information? You care about information because, and this is the work of Evan Thompson, a colleague of mine, well, he was at UFT, he was still a friend, right? Is you you are a self-making thing. That's what a living thing is. You care about information because you are moment by moment, taking care of yourself. Not that yourself is over here and you're taking care of it. You are a self-organizing, self-taking care of thing. And because of that, you have to care about this information rather than that information. And organisms with other bodies presumably have different salience landscapes. Wittgenstein famously well said, even if a lion could speak, we would not understand them. Because even if they were using English correctly, what they found relevant and salient would be bizarre to us, because they have different bodies that are embedded in different environments. And that is not happenstance, that is constitutive of you being a cognitive agent. If you were not embodied, you do not have any reason for caring about this information rather than that information. And then you have faced the fact that the world is combinatorially explosive in the amount of information available to you.
0: Yeah. You know, this is very ineptly what I was trying to convey very early in the conversation. Predominantly, and I encourage people to find this, it's not going to be immediately coming to the tip of my tongue, but Steve Jurbertson, who's a very technical investor. I think he did electrical engineering and mechanical engineering degree in three years at Stanford or something like that. I'm probably getting some of the specifics wrong, but he's been on the podcast before. And he had this very long Facebook post discussing why it would be difficult, if not impossible, to experience anything as a human if we were just brains in a jar.
1: Yes, brain in a vat problem, yes.
0: Yeah, brain in a vat problem. And I found it very compelling and sort of embarrassing that it wasn't self-evident to me right off the bat. But it's like without these appendages and this, <laughs> this uh, multifaceted organism to interface with an environment, what we experience as consciousness does, doesn't seem at least offhand to me, possible, which makes it very precious that we have this experience. Being embodied
1: is is really wonderful, actually. Yeah. So what are the two E's that lead to six? Emotional. The idea that our knowing and our emoting are separable things, I think, is one of the great mistakes that came out of the Enlightenment-Romanticism conflict. Being rational, ratio proper proportioning. It's about putting things into perspective, perspectival knowing and caring about them in the right way and knowing within that when and where and how to be logical, et cetera, et cetera. We've already talked about that. And a good place to point people about this is Damasio's Descartes error, right? You have people who have a certain kind of brain damage and they have, the frontal cortex is working such that you could give them a standard IQ test and they could do all the computations quite well in it. But you could drive them insane by saying, before you take the test, I want you to choose. Should you write it in red ink or black ink or blue ink? And then they go crazy because they have no motivation. They have no affect. They have no reason to care about this rather than that. Emotion and cognition are interweaving and interaffording. So that's why emotion should be the next E. Emotions are not irrational. Like I said, there is no one faculty that is infallibly good. Yes, your emotions can lead you astray, but try living without them and see how rational you can be. Your agency will be crippled. And I mean that seriously. That would be my 50. And the six has to do with a somewhat technical term, exaptation, which is drawn from evolutionary theory. Let me give you a clear example. So I'm using my tongue to speak, Right but tongues did not evolve for speech. If they did, all the animals with tongues would be talking to us, right? Right. What you have is you have a a very flexible muscle because it's for mastication and it has a lot of very fine nerve endings because it's for poison and sucrose detection and things like that. And it happens to be in the air passageway. So you've got something that's like pre-adapted, already almost perfectly built for being a speaking machine. And so acceptation is you take something and you repurpose it. And this is the work of Michael Anderson, like the way the cerebellum has been repurposed from being a, uh, like a sensory motor balance thing to being how we balance and move around in abstract space. And so that exaptation, the idea of Michael Anderson, more recent work, especially in Dehan and others, is the brain is constantly doing that. The brain is constantly exapting. Things like machines that have been built for doing one thing and then they get repurposed or they also use the language of circuit reuse, like from computer science, that has been repurposed. I like the 60s. Do you have any heretical beliefs about
0: <laughs> consciousness that people in the space would strongly disagree with or think are unfounded yet you have conviction in?
1: Yes. All right. All right. And uh, if people are interested in this, I have a more long-form presentation of a talk I gave at Thunder Bay, uh, the Conference on Consciousness and Conscience. And I talk about the three questions of consciousness. And so the first question is the question everybody's really fixated on, which is the nature question, which is how is something that seems so non-physical, how does it possibly exist in the otherwise physical universe. And that's the nature question. And of course, you have Chalmers' version of the hard problem, and qualia, and things like that. And I'll come back to qualia in a second. Now, there's another question which is as equally important, and people don't give it enough attention. And they should. And this is the function question, which is, what is consciousness for? What does it do? And before you give me an answer, let me try and make this more problematic to you. (laughs) You do a lot of... Very, very sophisticated stuff without consciousness. You are taking the noises coming out of my face hole and translating them into ideas in your mind, and you have no idea how that process works. You have no introspective access to it. I make noises. You have ideas. What's happening in between? Don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Or think about the, the complex, sophisticated action you can do, how little attention you have to bring to walking or even... And you've had this, I no doubt, probably, highway hypnotism, where you've been driving and you realize for the past 50, I haven't been paying attention to the road at all. And yet, this sort of zombie inside me has been managing to keep me on the road, and it's, right? And I wouldn't rely on it or anything, but you did. So, our unconscious seems to be so powerful. Why do we have consciousness? What's it do? And why do we love it so much? Yeah. Right? Um, And then the third question is the meta-question. What's the relationship between these questions? So here's my first heresy. Unlike many people, I think these two questions have to be answered in a completely integrated fashion. I think trying to answer the nature question without answering the function question is doomed to fail, and I think trying to answer the function question without trying to answer the nature question is doomed to fail. So there's the first Vervakian heresy, and I don't know who's going to be devil's advocate for me. But anyways, oh no, that'd be the opposite of a person putting me on trial. So that's the first. Here's the second. The second is we can do this, we can find a way of answering this if we pay attention to a convergence that is occurring about what is the function of consciousness. And then I think this gives us a lot of the machinery for explaining a lot of the qualia that are so central to the nature of consciousness. Qualia being. Qualia means the subjective feel, the redness of red to you. It's not just, you're not just unconsciously reacting to wavelengths, you're having this experience of redness. That's a qualia. And that seems to be something in consciousness, and it's subjective in nature. And we don't even know if your qualia and my qualia are the same, well, right? Very you often know. they're not, right? I
0: mean, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> So, I mean, Japan is a good example of that, right? I mean, they're like green and blue are not the same green and blue that we see, depending on the crosswalk,
1: go signals, and so on. And even a person who's colorblind, right, has yep. different qualia. Or as Thomas Nagel famously argued, bats who use echolocation have qualia that we don't have. Okay, so that's what that means. And that's the hard problem, because there doesn't seem to be any way of explaining their nature. But I think if you get into—and this is work I'm doing with a whole bunch of other people, so I don't, I don't want to take sole credit—but I think if you make use of functionality and you make use of the four kinds of knowing and things like this, I think you can give an integrated answer. There is a consensus emerging, and I've published on this and talked about this, around what consciousness does, what's it for. And then I think once you get that and you open up that functionality, you actually get a phenomenology, you get an explanation of the experience out of that. So the converging thing is that what consciousness is for, and it overlaps with attention and working memory and fluid intelligence, think about when you're driving on the highway, when do you come back to it? If there's something unexpected happens. Or there's a really complex situation suddenly emerging. Or there's an ill-defined problem that you're not quite sure how to formulate and frame. That's what you need consciousness for. So what is consciousness? It's this higher-order relevance realization. It's about re-realizing what's relevant and important so that you can deal with the added challenge of zeroing in on relevant information that is given to you by novelty complexity, and ill-definedness. That's what consciousness is for. It's this enhanced relevance realization. That's why it overlaps with working memory and things like that. Now, that does sound like a consciousness that would extend to animals other than humans. Totally. It helps to explain our intuition about this. Mm-hmm. Generally, when people are willing to extend the attribution of consciousness, they actually do it in a way, without realizing, that tracks how much fluid intelligence do they think that organism has? Because fluid intelligence, working memory, attention, all of these things are about relevance realization and enhancing it. And so you've got this consensus. Okay, let's say we get relevance realization and that consciousness is a higher order version. What about qualia? Well, first of all, let's divide qualia. This is the second Vervecki heresy. Let's divide qualia into two kinds of qualia. There's the typical qualia that philosophers love to talk about, the adjectival qualia like blueness and greenness and sweetness. But there are adverbial qualia. There are qualias of here-ness, now-ness, togetherness of my experience. I'm here, I'm now, my experience is together. There's a unity and a here-now presencing of consciousness, the adverbial. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Talk to people who have engaged in long-term meditative practice, and this is well-documented. Read Foreman for the documentation. I've I've been here in this state, and you get into a state called the pure consciousness event. You're not conscious of anything. You're definitely not conscious of any qualia, you're not conscious of any thought. You're not even conscious of consciousness. You're just conscious. You don't black out. You're just conscious. All you have is a pure, perspectival, participatory knowing. You're conscious by being conscious, and there's nothing else going on. Now, what's interesting about that is you you don't black out because you can remember being there in that state. There's no adjectival qualia, but consciousness is still present. So think about that for a second. But what doesn't go away? You don't lose the here ness because people say in the pure consciousness event, there's full presence. You don't lose now ness. They talk about, I'm in eternity, this pure now ness they don't lose togetherness, they talk about pure oneness and unity. The adverbial qualia are on steroids and the adjectival qualia have gone away. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a good way to put it. The adjectival qualia are not necessary, and there's other arguments, they're not sufficient for consciousness. Consciousness is primarily about adverbial qualia, And adverbial qualia can be explained by relevance realization. It's how are things relevant to you. That gives you the centeredness to consciousness. The timing of things is an important part of relevance. How things belong together, fit together, that's... Relevance realization gives you the adverbial qualia. So if you understand the functionality of consciousness as heightening relevance realization it will be present in all of those adverbial qualia, and there will be a sense of those even being heightened when you're in a pure consciousness state. That's the third and last verveiki heresy. So it's a completely naturalistic explanation of consciousness.
0: I've got a number of follow-up questions here. I need to set the table a little bit. So I was overseas and ended up in conversation with two very smart, russian emigres who had a lot of biophysics background and exposure and we were having a lot of coffee or i was having a lot of coffee at least one of them were only drinking tea nonetheless ended up talking about and by talking i mean me listening to them talk about quantum effects in the brain and it was well above my pay grade but it led me to really want to have someone on the podcast at some point who can credibly speak, because there are a lot of wackadoodles and all sorts of new age stuff who would love to try to talk about this, but someone who has credible scientific bona fides that would allow them to talk about this. And this leads to my question, which hopefully doesn't get me too many heckles from the audience. It probably will get a few. Do you have any thoughts on panpsychism? Is it just nonsense in your view? Is there plausibly something to it? There are very, seem to be very strong feelings on many sides related to this. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on the matter?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the quantum thing, I mean, the the, the best people I think would be Penrose and Hammeroff, people Mm -hmm. like that. Yep. I mean, I think it's undeniable. We have empirical evidence that there's quantum stuff going on in smell. I think that's undeniable. Is there quantum stuff going on in the kind of consciousness that is overlapping with attention and working memory and intelligence? No because you show all kinds of limitations that are clear evidence that you are operating like a classical machine. Like all the biases I talked about and all the ways you ignore all kinds of information, blah, 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 blah. You have problems about temperature and you have problems. So I think those people give the best representation. I'm giving you why I'm not convinced by that. I think there's a, the evidence against it is significantly greater than any evidence for it. And like you I don't like the argument that goes, consciousness is weird, quantum is weird, therefore (laughs) consciousness is quantum, like that. That's just ridiculous. Right. Right. Now, panpsychism is a different thing, and you don't have to be convinced about quantum stuff to be a a panpsychist. Mm -hmm. I should have defined my terms, but would you you mind just giving people an overview of of what panpsychism is? Panpsychism is a version of what's called, well, I would argue, it's a version of what's called elemental property dualism. Yep. And so the idea here is we have fundamental building blocks of our ontology, space, time, force, matter, energy, and we may move those around, but that's not important right now. And we don't try and explain them. We use them to explain other things because they're fundamental. And like I say, physics, some people are arguing we may reject time and space as fundamental and move to something deeper. I don't know. But that's not relevant to the core of the argument. The core of argument is that consciousness is like that. Consciousness is a fundamental ontological building block, and therefore the attempt to explain it with any of the other fundamental building blocks is impossible. You can't do it because they are at the same ontology, meaning the structure of reality. They are at the same ontological level. They're the basement level in terms of which you explain everything else. So you can't attempt to try and explain them is a misframing of the kind of thing they are. And so that means if consciousness is such a fundamental ontological building block, like space, time, energy, force, right, and energy and matter are convertible, Einstein, right, there is no part of reality where even empty space has got all of these fundamental ontological building blocks, And if consciousness is such a fundamental building block, it is also showing up in everything. So my table has consciousness. Not my full-blown consciousness, but it has what it's like to be a table. And it has, like, my consciousness is about perspectival knowing. And so it it has what it's like to be a table. It has an inner subjective experiential aspect. Now, not full-blown like mine. Nobody's ridiculous in claiming there's some sort of consciousness-like mind somehow trapped in this table, unable to speak or something like that, So we have no <laughs> evidence for that. But the idea is that there are aspects of what it is to be a table that are what it's like to be a table for the table and not for me or for you. And mm-hmm. that would be what the claim of panpsychism is. The person who best makes it plausible to my mind, while well, not necessarily agreeing, is a colleague of mine, Bill Seeger. He's made a very strong case or the plausibility of panpsychism. Now I reject panpsychism, although I accept things that come close to it in some important ways. What do you reject and what do you accept? I don't think that there's anything like perspectival knowing going on at the level of the table, but I'm confident enough about my ignorance of consciousness and reality to not say, I'm sure and slam on on the table. I do think, and this is work of Evan Thompson and others in 4E COGS so and Michael Levin, I think there's a deep continuity, meaning the principles of consciousness have a deep continuity with the principles of cognition, which have a deep continuity with the principles of life, which have a deep continuity with the principles of self-organization, which have a deep continuity with some of the fundamental ways in which reality unfolds for us. And so— They're not identical. You can't simply reduce the upper level to the lower levels, but there are shared principles all the way through. And I think the evidence for a deep continuity hypothesis is very good, and the arguments are very important. I do think, for example, it's proper to say that there is a rudimentary cognition for a paramecium. It's a cognitive agent. It's detecting the sugar molecule as food and this other molecule as poison. It's a little bit of an aspect, a little bit of a perspective, and it allows it to care about this rather than that. Now, is that what you and I have? No, something like that. Does that extend below living things? I don't think so, because self-organizing things like the fire don't seem to direct their behavior to preserve their own existence the way living things do. And I think that's a fundamental difference in how things are organized and how they function. So I don't think consciousness and cognition or agency drop below the level of living things. This is not directly related, but I'm curious, you were mentioning
0: the intimacy, the let's call it atypical intimacy that nonetheless seems, I'm paraphrasing, familiar to those who are doing circling. And I'm wondering what are some of the most unusual modes of cognition or relating or perceiving that you have noticed in those types of exercises.
1: Yeah, and circling and philosophical fellowship and dialectic exactly. and the dialogos, mm-hmm. all of these. First of all, especially when you take three people through this and they start doing a lot of that, that whole ecology and dialectic and the dialogos, they will discover a nestings of intimacies. They will discover first interpersonal intimacy between you and I. And then they'll discover intimacy between all of us and what is called the we space, this emergent sort of dynamical system that is sort of linking us and coupling us all together. People start to get a sense of intimacy to the we space, or Chris and I call it the logos, or a German word, the Geist. And then there's a third intimacy that people sometimes get to, which is they start to get an intimacy through the interpersonal and through the intimacy with the we space to sort of like the ground, the origin, the fount of intelligibility. They get a sense of intimacy that we talked about earlier as a sense of the sacred. And what's really interesting about this is people from all kinds of backgrounds, resolutely secular, will start to use spiritual and religious language to talk about these kinds of intimacies. It's a curious, I think, indicator,
0: right? It's like when when secular language fails, where do you go? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. What are you going to do? (laughs) You, as I understand it, had an office, I believe, directly across the hall or close to (laughs) Dr. Jordan Peterson. And my question is, with respect to the finding or creation of meaning, or meaning, broadly speaking, where would you say you most strongly, the two of you most strongly agree and where
1: do you most strongly disagree? Jordan and I, way before Jordan became a god, um, <laughs> Jordan and I, we used to regularly show up at conferences, we shared students a lot, we, we, we had some public debates, I mean in the proper good sense. And so Jordan shares with me this idea of relevance realization as a core problem to be explained and understood and that the relevance-realization gives us that sense of religio, that sense of connectedness, because it's how we're coupled non-propositionally to the world. Uh, We've already talked about this. Jordan and I share that a lot, and he's very, very interested and often supportive of the work I do on relevance-realization, intelligence, consciousness, meaning, and the cultivation of wisdom. And so that's where we have some very significant agreements. He places more emphasis on the narrative- on narrative than I do. I think non-narrative, I, I think narrative is very important. I want to make that very clear. I don't think we become temporally extended moral agents without narrative. But I think narrative depends on pre-narrative dialogical capacities. And we can move post-narrative, because this is what many people in wisdom traditions, mystical traditions report. They move post-narrative. And you see techniques for getting people to go post-narrative. Like think about the Zen Cohen. It's designed to get you into a narrative and then break narrative apart. Or Jesus of Nazareth's parables. They sound like stories, and there's a narrative, and you read the prodigal son, and then, who am I supposed to identify with? Who's right? Is it the father? Is it the prodigal son? Is it the elf? And you realize if you settle on any one of those, you haven't got it, and it blows the narrative apart. And Jesus, you know, is very—sorry, this sounds pretentious, I mean it respectfully—Jesus is a master of saying these things that sort of blow people apart, blow the narrative apart. And we have done this publicly. He and I had a discussion with Jonathan Pajot, and, and I was challenging Jonathan and Jordan about the emphasis on the narrative. And that, of course, comes from Jordan from his, his Jungian background and from Jonathan from his Eastern Orthodox. Although Jonathan, to give him due credit, came around later and he released a uh, video where he said, I th- John's right, the nomological is not reducible to the narrative. There's ways in which we connect to reality that are non-narrative and are important— I thought that was really good of him. So that'd be one area where Jordan and I disagree. Do you have to get the narrative before you can go post-narrative? I think so. I think so. And this is where I think the difference is. I think that narrative is indispensable, but I do not think that means it's metaphysically necessary. Let me give you an analogy. My only language that I'm fluent in is English. English is indispensable to be being a cognitive agent and communicating. But I wouldn't claim it is metaphysically necessary that every cognitive agent speak in English and only in English or, or has to know English. You know, that's ridiculous. See, so you have to make a distinction between indispensability, and I think narrative is developmentally indispensable, but I don't think it's metaphysically necessary to the full development of our cognition. Okay, so
0: you have that disagreement. You have different weighting of narrative and… Yep. Not the alternative, but the the term that you mentioned your colleague
1: used. The nomological, having to do with the law-like structures of reality. Laws and theories are powerful and important in a way that's not reducible to narratives. That's one area. And then another area is I put a lot more emphasis on practices and theorizing and helping to engineer practices and ecology of practices than Jordan does. That's another major difference. Why do you think that is? What would his... Response to that be? Would you imagine? Part of it, I think, in fairness to him, is background. And part of it has to do, I think, with Jordan is an, a very complex person. I respect Jordan. I consider him a colleague and uh, I consider him a friend. And what I want to say very clearly, and I do this to his face, by the way, and because I do it respectfully and dialogically, Jordan is fine with this. We disagree about things. For example, I think postmodernism and Derrida and Foucault. There's a lot to be learned there. I have criticisms of them, but there are important arguments that need to be engaged with. I have argued this with Jordan to his face. He disagrees. He thinks that postmodernism is largely crypto-Marxism, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and he rejects it sort of to core. I'm not denying that postmodernism has been taken by people in this way, but I would also say that many people invoke Derrida and Foucault, and they've not actually read Derrida And Foucault. Derrida was very interested (laughs) in Neoplatonism, and Foucault was very interested in Hadot and Stoicism towards the end of his career, and there's reasons for that, and I think you have to have a much more nuanced understanding of postmodernism. Now, I've made that argument to Jordan, and we disagree about it, but because I respect him and we enter into genuine dialogue, that's fine, right? The problem is, Jordan also has this other side where, and he doesn't do this with me, where he's very confrontational. I mean, he admits this, and he gets very polemical, I mean, it's usually in the political domain, and that's an area when he and I don't agree very much. But to his credit, Jordan respects that he and I can have significant different political commitments and nevertheless get into deep and important discussions of philosophical and scientific merit. I have to say that because I'm really tired of people saying that because I talk to Jordan and because I maintain the relationship that pre-existed his godhood that I am somehow advising or advocating for all of everything he says that's ridiculous I directly criticize him about a lot of things it's just I think it should be done in the way that we do it and we've always done it that's a hard thing my relationship yeah. to him is a challenge for me. I've considered both options. I've considered sort of just sort of throwing in, and I'm part of the Petersonian camp. And it's like, no, I can't do that. I can't do that in all honesty. I disagree with Jordan about politics as the main area. I disagree for philosophical reasons with Jordan about politics being the main area in which we can solve the meaning crisis. Politics is at the propositional level and is at the adversarial level. We need the non-propositional that's the main place where the meaning crisis is going to be addressed, I would argue. I disagree with him about that. I disagreed with him about particular philosophical stances, like his stance on postmodernism, etc. And so, completely identifying him would be inauthentic. Completely rejecting him would be inauthentic. We share a lot of concerns. We, I admire many of his ideas, I think he's made he's done good work, published work. He continues to make good arguments. He's an insightful person, and I have an ongoing history with him, and he talks to people that I talk to. I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't, so I, I sort of just say, well, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to show up and interact with him as philosophically and scientifically honestly as I can. Yeah, I had Jordan on,
0: on this podcast, and It was incredible to see how strongly binary, not just the responses were, but also the expectations of me were all in, are you all in or are you all out? And there was part of me that wanted to say, this is the kind of identity politics morass that we have as such an issue to have any kind of reconciliation and civil debate. It can't be well, I'm making a strong statement, but like it shouldn't, be, shouldn't have to be that black or white. I think there are many areas- I want to strengthen
1: your argument for you. Yeah. I want to strengthen your argument. <laughs> Please, I need someone to do this okay. with me more regularly. This has to do with adaptivity. This has to do with intelligence. Let's just give you an example of relevance realization right now, right here, right now. You have two attentional systems, probably more, but at least these two. You have the task focus that is trying to keep you focused on what, what is John saying with his multisyllabic complex sentences. <laughs> and then there's a part of you, the default mode network, that's mind wandering. And I'm not accusing you of anything. It's drifting away, mm-hmm. it's thinking about other things. They're locked together like evolution. The mind wandering introduces variation. The task network kills most of it off, but some of it survives and r- helps reproduce the conversation and keep it going. Opponent processing. Your autonomic nervous system about arousal, sympathetic, is biased to arousing you. Parasympathetic is biased to getting you to calm down. And they're locked together in opponent processing. You find this all through adaptive systems, opponent processing, democracy. I argued this when I gave a talk in the International Symposium on Democracy in Prague in in September, right? Democracy should be opponent processing. The best way for me to correct my perspectival bias is to have you be in opponent processing with me. You take a different bias, but we agree that we are each other's best means of self-correction. That's how democracy should work, and we have degenerated it into adversarial, the other side is evil and must be destroyed because we are perfectly right and correct with a sinful, and I use that word, advisedly, a sinful self-righteousness on both sides, a pox on both of your houses, I would say to that, because you're undermining the very opponent processing that is necessary for democracy to be a good means for us to use extended cognition to solve our complex problems. So that's how I'm strengthening your argument. That's what I meant to say, so thank you. It goes to something I said earlier. Stop trying to demonize or deify any one of your faculties. Stop trying to demonize or deify Jordan. Confront his arguments, argument by argument. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Even some of his bad arguments need to be taken seriously because they're well-made and they contain insight. Some of the things you reject, but reject it because of the content of the argument, not because of the side you're on. What is that accomplishing? Right. That is not accomplishing any overcoming of your or my self-deception— All it's doing is reinforcing whatever confirmation bias we are already enslaved to. Talking about
0: opponent processing makes me think about some of my close friendships and how I choose to develop friendships with people who can help with the checks and balances and the constructive pushback when helpful. And that leads me to want to ask you, and this is very self-interested of me, but it's something that's on my mind a lot because most of my friends are non-religious but looking to create meaning or find meaning as we all are. How would you advise, say, a group of middle-aged friends to support one another in having more meaningful lives or creating meaning? What can people do in a small cohort? Would you have any recommendations?
1: Don't just swap beliefs. It's insufficient. It's just a propositional. Commit to taking up together a living ecology of practices. Commit to doing that together and bring that opponent processing into the non-propositional aspects of your cognition, into the extended aspects of your cognition. Learn how to do some of these practices I've been talking about. Take them up together and take up ones that involve you practicing together. Because, I mean... A big part of what the church and the temple and the mosque did was exactly that. They provided a home, a tradition, in which ecologies of practices were properly homed and supported so that people could come together and not just communicate, but commune together by sharing participation. I'm emphasizing all these words because of all the ways we've talked about them, right, in shared ecologies of practices that they mutually conform to and transform themselves to, and thereby mutually set up a space where they can afford each other's transformations, where you can cultivate together enhanced religio, enhanced sense of sacredness, enhanced sense of the depths within you calling to the depths of others and calling to the depths of reality. Don't tell me what you believe, tell me what you practice. Tell me how you're practicing together and how you're acting as checks and balances and opponent processing on the creation, the the creation and the running of these ecologies of practices and commit to it uh, the way you commit to a friendship. Right, your friend is a complex dynamical system, and ecology of practice is a complex dynamical system. It takes time and effort and commitment and a willingness to transform and fail and learn from mistakes in order to make this work. Get into an ecology of practice. Try to get make sure that that ecology of practice is in ongoing dialogue and discussion with the best cognitive science out there right now so you don't go off in weird rabbit holes that can happen when people do this so that you stay tied to the best science we have about how cognition and consciousness and intelligence and distributed cognition and flow, etc. work. That is the single most important thing. Now, I've offered lots. I have a full meditation course and contemplation course, cultivation of wisdom course. I have the whole after Socrates. There's lots out there. And you don't have to just pay attention to me. You can pay attention to the ecologies of practices like Rafe Kelly. I went to return to the source last summer, blew me apart right? Just an amazing ecology of practices. I've been doing a lot of participant observation and experiment in other people's ecologies of practices. You have to become a connoisseur and a creator of ecologies of practices. There's no other way to enhance the capacity for participating in meaning. That would be the most central advice I would give somebody. I was meaning, and I will now ask about After Socrates. So you have this very popular YouTube series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Why create After Socrates? I listened to the criticism of other people. Awakening from the Meaning Crisis has a couple of main criticisms that people made. One was, a lot of people asked at the end, yeah, but what do I do now? What do I do now? You've convinced me about the Meaning Crisis and this problem and blah, blah, and how cognitive, but what do I do now? And then secondly, you did this totally individualistically, but how does this work with other people? So after Socrates is not extensive, it's intensive. It's trying to trace the entire tradition from Socrates, right? Spending a lot of time there about all of these kinds of reverse engineer. I'm not claiming this is exactly what Socrates did. Who could claim that? I'm trying to reverse engineer as best I can this dialectic into dialogos, these kinds of practices we've been talking about, so that people can undertake a pedagogical program. Every episode is, I give an argument and they build on each other like awakening from the meaning crisis. But I also give points of reflection that are designed to be taken up in discussion by groups. And then I give instruction in a particular practice that resonates with the content of the lecture. So as the lecture builds the argument, intergroup discussion is being built and a pedagogical program is being built so that you can come to take up the Socratic way of life in community with other people who are taking it up and cultivating an extended and developed ecology of practices. That's what After Socrates is all about. Where can people find After Socrates? Where's the best place for people to go if they want to learn more? Just go on my YouTube channel. It's right there for free.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, we will certainly link to the YouTube channel. The website, JohnVerveke.com, on Twitter, Verveke underscore John. John, this has been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for taking so much time and being so patient with my Questions. Hopefully, it wasn't too torturous. I do appreciate it. Not at all.
1: (laughs) I really enjoyed it. So much so that I'll answer your question. If you want me ever to come back, I'd be very happy to do so. I would love to do it. I would love to do it. Yeah. I would love to do a round two. Is
0: there anything else you would like to say? Any closing comments? Any requests you'd like to make of my audience? Anything at all that you'd like to add before we wind to a close?
1: I don't think so. I would ask people to consider the two series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis after Socrates. Take a look at some of the conversations I'm having with other people. Try to give me the benefit of the doubt when I'm talking to people you might not like. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. And so I guess that's all I would have to say right now. And again, I was a little intimidated and I'm not usually uh, thinking about talking to you. You have quite a powerful, and like I said before we turned uh, according on a reputation and yet you were so welcoming and accommodating and you and I, I think got into the flow state, a mutual flow state quite a few times. I think it was, really wonderful. So thank you very much.
0: Oh, Thank you, John. Thank you for being such a great jazz player on the stage. (laughs) And I I really, really enjoyed it. I took tons of notes. So I have quite a lot of, of reading and investigating and practicing. Ahead of me, yeah. And to everybody listening, as per usual, we all have links to everything. <laughs> I may need to do some work on my spelling of various names, but we'll figure it out in the show notes right. at timvlog podcast. And until next time, please be just a bit kinder than is necessary. That includes to yourself, but certainly to other people. And remember, it's not just what you believe, it is what you practice. So get to practicing, folks. And as always, thanks for tuning in. And I thought we would start with a sandbox that, that I like to play in. And I think you are a black belt where I am still a, a <laughs> middling white belt. And that's a discussion of language and words. And specifically, I was hoping you could perhaps give us some examples of words that we use commonly that frame the way we think about life or relate to life in the West, if that is perhaps a container that works for the question.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good container. I I think there are words that are signpost benchmarks for a kind of cultural cognitive grammar, uh, giving us some sort of our basic conceptual vocabulary. So two that come to mind very readily are these two terms subjective and objective. And people, of course, forget the original meanings of these words. But what we do is we have taken them to be an exhaustive division of reality. There's the interior subjective mind stuff, and there's the exterior objective physical stuff. And we take it that that's just the way it is, and that's how we've always thought, and that's how how everybody has always thought about reality, and that's not true. The Greeks didn't have that division, and of course many Eastern philosophies don't have that division. And there's been critiques of that framework which we got from Descartes, the Cartesian framework, for about the last 200 years, even in the history of Western philosophy. So the fact that we have these terms, we bandy them about, we think that that's all there is, it's complete and exhaustive, and they're divided, and they're really radically incommensurable with each other. It just shows how Well, how well this has insinuated itself into the very way we see ourselves, see the world, experience ourselves, and it's very powerful and very interesting. And part of my work is to try to undermine that dichotomy and try and get us to think more profoundly about that there must be something deeper than the subjective and objective that fundamentally makes it possible for them to be related together because if not we are really doomed in a kind of radical skepticism and solipsism solipsism is the idea that you the only thing that's really real is your own mind kind of thing so uh, that would be one clear a- example another one along those lines that we haven't paid attention to how much it's changed is the word matter we now take matter as actual stuff But if you go before the scientific revolution, matter in the Aristotelian framework means exactly the opposite. It means pure potentiality, that which is awaiting to be informed and actualized. So Aristotle's notion is like a piece of wood is potentially a chair or a table, and what makes it act—actuality—what makes it act like a table is its form— its structure and functional organization, what makes it act like a chair is its form. But before that, it's just a potential chair or a potential table, and that's what matter was. It was sort of this pure potential. And so the word has actually flipped in meaning radically, and then we, of course, think that it's always been this way, and we forget that there's a dramatically opposite possibility even within our own history. So that would be too easy—well, not easy to reflect upon, but easy to bring up—examples of words that— are very powerful in our culture, so much so that we, we see so much by means of them that they're almost completely transparent to us. Mm-hmm. How has your
0: relating to, and I apologize if the wording on this is clumsy, but your relating to your experienced reality changed as you've studied cognitive science and philosophy uh, and these different labels and frameworks that despite our perhaps underlying subconscious belief that it it has always been this way, in in the case of, say, subjective, objective. How
1: has your own relating to life's experience changed? I coined a term, the transjective, to mean that which binds the two together, that which binds the inner life of the organism to the outer world of the environment kind of thing. And there I was influenced by a teacher of mine, John Kennedy, who was a protege of J.J. Gibson, Let me give you an example. I've become aware of things. So Gibson had a notion of of an affordance. So this water bottle is graspable. Now, the graspability isn't in my hand. I can't grasp anything. I can't grasp Africa or something like that, right? And, and, And the graspability isn't in the bottle because like an ant can't grasp it and et cetera, right? It's actual a real relation of fittedness between my hand and this. And the floor is walkable, By me. This way of experiencing this connectedness as a more profound way of experiencing my mental life has now become increasingly prominent and salient for me. It goes towards the main work I do on scientific work about relevance, realization, and things like that. But it also overlaps. You know, I do Taoist practices, I do Tai Chi Chuan and Qi Kung and things. And, And that sense of connectedness that is talked about, that shift helps me get into that sense of connectedness in a more profound and transformative way. So it's made it—nobody's ever asked me that question. That's a (laughs) really good question. It has really changed the configurations of my experience, what is foregrounded, what becomes salient to me, What such that I can actually— taste it more in my experience and be transformed more by it. Yes, very much <laughs> so. That's that's a very clear example. Sorry, I, I'll stop in a sec, but this is long form. You can go as long as you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that translates in. How do I say this without sounding like a Hallmark card? But, like, (laughs) you move to an understanding of love as this connectedness, but not as the idea of connectedness, but as the real reciprocal opening between you and another person. They disclose to you in a way that allows you to disclose to them, and you're mutually affording that. And that goes from being something that you just think to something that you find yourself deeply being shaped by as you participate in it. Mm. I'm glad I asked. And I, I hope to ask why I'm going
0: to ask many more. We've got plenty of time. This is fun. So I wanted to come back to something you mentioned. And that is, I'm going to paraphrase here because I uh, can't recall the exact wording that you used, but effectively some interwoven fabric that is more fundamental than the subjective-objective sure. dichotomy that we use. And I'm curious if that is... An older way of knowing, if that is a so it's a revisiting of an older way of knowing or relating to reality, or if that is a newer way of thinking about something that could connect and underlie those types of concepts. And I'm asking in part because I had a conversation a few weeks ago with Wade Davis, who's an ethnographer, and yeah, I've read a uh, very of good books. Book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so he's, and he's written quite a bit about different ways. Of knowing, which I certainly want to dive into with you as well. So, is what you referred to something old? Is it something new?
1: Is it something that has no temporal fixed point? The answer is both. And that's not a cop out Canadian answer. What I mean by that is (laughs) there's definitely important provenance. And I'll talk about it in a sec. But I'm not recommending that we simply think we can return to that Mm -hmm. in some sort of ahistorical manner. So, that's what I mean when I'm sort of caveating. This notion that our relationship to reality is more about this connectedness. This is obviously in the Platonic and the whole Neoplatonic tradition, this idea of participation. One way the ancients thought about it is, well, this has a structural functional organization to it that allows it to act the way it does. And who best knows this? Somebody who could describe it? And for
0: people who have audio only, this, you're pointing at the water bottle.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. sorry everybody. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Right, so, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, mm-hmm. So who actually knows this better? Somebody who could describe it or somebody who could make it? Well, mm. you, generally people say, well, somebody who could actually make it, who could actually bring about the structural functional organization. So what does the maker have in their head? Well, they have the structural functional organization, and they just have to put it into that. So the thing that makes this act the way it does is identical to something in your mind. And you're both sharing in that. So this is called a contact epistemology. You're mutually participating. And so the relatedness and the connectedness is more primordial. And, that, and that's sort of an idea running through the whole Neoplatonic tradition, which I would argue following Arthur v. Lewis, is really the spiritual grammar of the West, is the Neoplatonic tradition. So in that sense, it's old. In another sense, it's very new, because what's coming out of 4E cognitive science is exactly this kind of thing. And this has to do with ways of knowing. I talk about, because of the work I do in 4e Cog Sci, four kinds of knowing. Maybe we can get into that. But the point is that three of those four kinds of knowing are about this kind of connectedness and mutual participation. And I find this very interesting. The sort of cutting-edge Cog Sci is arguing that this is, even to use the metaphor, your mind is not in your head. It's between your embodied brain and the world. That's where the mind is, and that's how you should think of the mind. And that's really cutting edge and important. And there's a lot of important work being done about it. But in a lot of ways, it harkens back to that ancient Neoplatonic tradition. So it's both old and new in really, really persuasive ways, I would say. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just one more
0: thing before you take off. And that is Five Bullet Friday. Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little fun before the weekend? Between one and a half and two million people subscribe to my free newsletter, my super short newsletter called Five Bullet Friday. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. It is basically a half page that I send out every Friday to share the coolest things I've found or discovered or have started exploring over that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things. It often includes articles I'm reading, books I'm reading, albums perhaps, gadgets, gizmos, all sorts of tech tricks and so on that get sent to me by my friends, including a lot of podcasts This episode is brought to you by Eight Sleep. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep, and heat is my personal nemesis. I've suffered for decades tossing and turning, throwing blankets off, pulling the back on, putting one leg on top, and repeating all of that ad nauseum. But now I am falling asleep in record time. Why? Because I'm using a device that was recommended to me by friends called the Pod Cover by Eight Sleep. The pod cover fits on any mattress and allows you to adjust the temperature of your sleeping environment, providing the optimal temperature that gets you the best night's sleep. With the pod cover's dual zone temperature control, you and your partner can set your sides of the bed to as cool as 55 degrees or as hot as 110 degrees. I think generally in my experience, my partner's prefer the high side and I like to sleep very very cool. So stop fighting. This helps. Based on your biometrics, environment and sleep stages, the pod cover makes temperature adjustments throughout the night that limit wake-ups and increase your percentage of deep sleep. In addition to its best-in-class temperature regulation, the pod cover sensors also track your health and sleep metrics without the need to use a wearable. So go to 8sleep.com/tim all spelled out 8sleep.com/tim and save $250 on the 8sleep pod cover. That's eight sleepcom slash Tim. 8sleep currently ships within the US, Canada, and the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. Again, that's 8sleep.com slash Tim to save $250 on the 8sleep pod cover. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. I love Basecamp. You know what I didn't love my first job right out of college? More than, geez, two decades ago now? Nonstop email, busy work yada, yada, yada. That was the norm. I remember thinking, please just let me do my job. And now it's even worse. You're reachable everywhere all the time. You have separate apps for chatting, others for sharing files, email tasks, progress tracking. The list just goes on and on. And with endless emails and back-to-back meetings, you're thinking, just let me do my job. You and your team deserve, wait for it, less. Less complexity, less confusion, and certainly fewer time wasting meetings and notifications. Basecamp combines everything you need to manage your team and projects into one simple platform. I've used Basecamp myself, along with my team, for a million different things. Optimize your business with Basecamp and cut your inboxes and calendars in half. You can save time and money. Right now, Basecamp is offering a free 30-day trial. Plus, listeners of the tim ferris show that's you guys get an exclusive discount get 10 percent off of your first year's annual subscription when you sign up at basecamp.com slash tim that's a free 30-day trial plus 10 percent off as my dear listeners at basecamp.com slash tim learn more check it out basecamp.com slash tim